With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, welcome to the program. In a worldwide television exclusive, you're about to meet a man I think is the luckiest man in the world. His name is Tracy Edwards. And he seemed doomed to become Jeffrey Dahmer's 18th murder victim. Miraculously, Tracy escaped the Milwaukee Cannibal Killer's vile clutches. It's amazing, you know, your story is so amazing. Uh, you know, uh, first of all, before we get really deeply into it, how did you meet Jeffrey Dahmer? Okay, I've seen him around in the neighborhood before. On several occasions, he spoke with me and my friends, you know. Seemed like a normal, everyday guy, you know. So, uh, this normal, everyday guy, how did he manage to lure you to the apartment? I mean, how did he get you to go someplace with him. Well, first of all, we were at the mall, you know, me and my friends just hanging out, you know. It was after work, yep. and then he was in the mall at that time, too. He approached us, you know, asked us what we was doing. He said he was just down from Chicago visiting a sick relative, you know. So he lied about where he was from. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. And then he said, uh, people in Milwaukee are not so friendly, which is true. Yep. And being back just new to the city six weeks before then, you know, yeah, if I could relate to what he was saying, you know, and then he said, I got some money, we can go buy beer, get girls, go down by the lake, you know. Did he flash any bills? Yeah, he had a couple hundred dollars or more, you know, he said he had sponsored a beer and everything, I said, I guess it's okay. You know? So he was going to be like the big daddy and show you a good time. Yeah, yeah, right. To hustle some chicks. Right. You know, we've all heard about the atrocities committed by this man, by Jeffrey Dahmer, Milwaukee's serial killer who mutilated and dismembered 11 bodies and later confessed to six additional murders, going back as far as 1978. And you also know what the cops found in his chamber of horrors, skulls in the freezer, decomposed hands dangling in the closet, bones stored away in cardboard boxes we have all seen these news accounts we've seen his smug and uh, passionless face beaming to us from uh, the courtroom there but today ladies and gentlemen for the first time on television you will hear tracy's first-hand account of how jeffrey dahmer operated how jeffrey dahmer lured this man drugged him held him hostage and finally attempted to add him to his macabre body count in that uh, in that apartment okay so uh, you have just told us uh, that he's flashed the bills he says let's have a good time you say it's gonna be okay what'd you do then okay then uh, we left the mall me and a couple of other friends we were all together you know then we proceeded up the street Wisconsin Avenue there was a liquor store there so he said let's go in I'll buy the beer and some uh, rum he brought some rum liquor you know mm -hmm. yeah and then where'd you go Okay, we step, came back outside, and then I saw my twin brother, you know, which works right there on Wisconsin Avenue, you mm -hmm. know. And then I told him what we had planned and everything, you know, where to go. While I was talking to my brother, Jeffrey was telling my best friends other things, you know, that he lived in a different place totally from where he was going to be, you know. Yep, so I didn't know, right? So I had to go up to Wisconsin Avenue where my brother lived and Jeffrey lived in that neighborhood. Yep, so we both proceeded there. We caught a cab, right? So you and Dom were alone in the cab. Right. 
Then what happens? Okay, and then I stop at my brother's house, okay? And I get out and I go try to knock on the door, but my brother's girlfriend is not there. Okay. So no one's home. What happens then? Okay, and then Jeffrey said, well, let's come up to the apartment. We have a beer about time, everything. She might be back. We drink a beer or two, you know. Were you surprised that he had an apartment? He had just told you he came from Chicago. He said he had been there for two weeks, though, previous to that. So I guess, uh, you know, he said he was a photographer, you know. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe I, he can afford it. He can afford it, you know. So you go up to his apartment? Right. What was the first unusual thing that struck you about the place? The smell of the apartment. Well, not basically the apartment. As soon as you open the hall door and go enter in the building, it had just like a smell, just tasteful smell, you know. Yep. And then I asked him what it was. He said it was a sewer problem. Is that, uh, is that what it smelled like? Did it mm -hmm. smell like a sewer? No, I don't really know. You know, it stunk bad enough, you know. I'm mm -hmm. saying it could be plumbing or some, you know, backup clockets or something, you know. Now, what floor was the apartment on? On the second floor. So you walk up to the apartment. Right. He opens the door. How many locks on the door? I had about eight locks on the front door. Okay, so you go in, do you immediately see things that strike you as extraordinary? Not basically. Yeah, and this, he had a camera out there. He said it was for security purposes, you know, and all the locks, you know, alarms on every door. Yeah, even on a bathroom door, there was alarm. On the windows, there was alarm. Really? Yeah. So uh, you go inside, what happens then? Okay. Then he offers me a beer while he said he had to go to the bedroom for a minute. He'll be back in a second. So he gave me a beer and also mixed me a rum and coke, right? Mm -hmm. So I just sipped a little bit and drank just a little bit of the rum and coke, and I started feeling nauseated, you know? And real funny, I said, well, I'm not going to drink any more of this, so I sat it down for a while, you know? Then he came in and said, you feeling pretty good yet, you know? And I thought, so. I said, it's okay, you know? And then I just sipped a beer, you know? Okay. I want you to lay out the scene now in the apartment. What's this place look like? What's unusual about what you're looking at? No, it was marotic acid boxes in the front. He said he cleaned it uh, concrete with us. That was the only thing unusual in the front living room, you know, a lot of different boxes, you know. With acid in them? Yeah, and contained body parts also, but that at the but time. But you didn't know I that? I didn't know that at the time. Okay, so there's boxes with acid in it, okay. What about his decorations in the apartment? Well, he said he was an athlete at Big Tanny, so he had some guys up there, you know, lifting weights or what have you. Some pictures of, of naked men? No, they wasn't nude in the front, only, you know, just a, from here up, you know, just like athletes, you know. So Nothing I, unusual about no, these photographs? No, not really. I've seen them before, you know. Okay. Did you think he was gay at that point? No. He never presented that to us at any point. So he never came on to you? No, he didn't even act like it. In that neighborhood, I couldn't suspect, you know, a gay guy being there. Okay, you know? well, if he wasn't gay... Was he just being your friend, Tracy? Yeah, right. Just being a buddy? Yep. All right, so he goes into the other room, he comes out, checks on the progress, obviously, of the Mickey that he slipped you. Right. You hadn't drunk too much, much of it by it, then. Yeah. Right. So what else, is, what else are you seeing then? What, what does he make you do then? Okay. After first, we were just like talking uh, about the fish tank. It was to the right. He was like sitting the way you were on the sofa, and I was at this end. And I was leaning over like this. And then before I knew it, he had threw a handcuff on me and pulled about a 12-inch machete-like knife and put it to my heart and my armpit, you know. He told me how skilled he was and that he could kill me at any moment if I wouldn't do what he said, you know. Did he tell you why he was doing that? Not at that point, you know. Not at that time. Okay, well, me. take us through this evening of horrors. You're obviously terrified now. You've got a knife stuck in your ribs. You've got a madman, got a handcuff on you. What do you right. do? 
And then he said, oh, at that time, he said, I just want to take pictures of you, you know, and stuff like that. And then he said, oh, I want you to go in the refrigerator and get another beer. So therefore, he stood me up with a handcuff with a loose one on my hand. He grabbed that, and he still had the knife at me, and he guided me towards the refrigerator. I opened the refrigerator there, and there the skulls was, and a heart, and a hand. And he said, that's beautiful, isn't it, you know? What do you do? Okay. I mean, what do you, what do you how do you react to that? It's so far beyond the pale of, of normal experience. I mean, how do you react looking at skulls and hands and body parts? At that point, I couldn't write, really do anything. I was like this, stuck. You know, he told me how great mine would be. How know? great your skull would be? Yeah. How beautiful I was. Then he started, you know, getting really like, if you want to call it homosexual or freaky or whatever, start telling me how pretty I was and all this, you know. But was he admiring you in a sexual way, or was he admiring you the way a hunter looks at his game? Uh, you know, another head, literally, to hang on, as a trophy on his yes. wall. Or in his refrigerator. In this yes, at that point, yeah, really. He was telling me that, and then he proceeded to tell me to go to the bedroom. He leaded me into the bedroom area. And he makes me sit on a sofa. Yeah. And then as I walked in there, I saw the bone, a skeleton, some type of bone. I didn't know if it came from an arm or a leg in the closet. You know? Did you know immediately that what you had seen in the refrigerator were human remains? At that point, I was so in shock, I couldn't really tell that I wasn't sure. But it looked real, too real not to be anything but the real thing, you know. Yeah. The carcasses of 11 of this madman's victims, uh, or what was left of them after he finished... Uh, his macabre snacking. Uh, with me now, a worldwide television exclusive interview, Tracy Edwards, the man who was uh, doomed to become Jeffrey Dahmer's 18th victim before the uh, commercial break. Tracy had taken us through his meeting with Dahmer, his uh, initial encounter in the, uh, in the front rooms of Dahmer's uh, chamber of horrors. Now Dahmer has taken you into the bedroom. You have a handcuff on your left hand. He's got the machete, the 12-inch knife in, the, uh, in his other hand sticking into your ribs. What does he do? Okay. Then he shows me some pictures. He said, I want to see, show you something. Uh, uh, you could look better than these pictures. You know, you're the star one so far, he told me. And so, the pictures were? Uh, of mutilated bodies, people handcuffed, you know, like he had been eating on them or something like that. You know? I couldn't really tell, but it just looked like they had Horses took it out of their body, you know, it's all over. You know, uh, you mentioned being partially drugged. You also mentioned being absolutely stunned and in shock. But I wonder right now, the fear must have been passing through you like, like nausea. I mean, describe it for us. Well, I got to a point where I was, I was, I was so fearful, you know that I just asked my God, why am I here, you know? Why should then it seemed like that someone came over me, channeled me, you know? And everything I said to this person was like really him, you know, directing me, telling me what to do and how to act with this person, you know? And then I just started talking to him, reasoning with him, you know, because he was telling me things like, you'll never leave me, okay? You'll be a permanent part of me. Yeah, once I eat your heart, you know, you'll never leave me, you know? 
Uh, he threatened to eat your heart. Yeah, he told me he would. And he meant it literally? Yes. All right, he shows you the pictures of the other victims, the uh, mutilated, partially consumed bodies of the other victims. What happens then, Tracy? Okay, then he tells me uh, to lay on the floor face down, okay? But for some reason, I just couldn't let him do that, you know? He just handcuffed me. So I kind of laid on my side, like, right? And then he lays across me and asks me to uh, let me let him listen to my heartbeat or whatever. So he puts his head on me, you know. And then I, I, I knew then that he was going to really start going off. I had to think of something. So I told him I had to use the restroom. Okay. So he takes the knife, like sticks it in my back and walks me to the bathroom and watch me use the restroom, you know. And then he proceeds. To, after that, we go back to the uh, bedroom and I'm talking with him. You know, telling him that I was a friend, you know, that I'm not here to hurt him or anything like that. I knew at that point I had to take some type of charge to let him know that I was sincere, you know. You know so I kind of unbuttoned my shirt for him and everything to let him realize that, feel comfortable. And all the time I was thinking about jumping out the window or would I go through the door or whatever, you know, because it was a life and death. I knew then the smell and everything was death, you know. And then he tells me to go to uh, this barrel-like thing where he has this different body parts. Like, Where'd you see me? I saw cut off the penises, things of this nature, hearts, hands, and things like that. Yep, and he's watching the Exorcist tape is playing, and he's getting... The Exorcist? Right. He's playing the Exorcist yeah, tape? Yep, he told me this was the best movie out, you know, enjoying that. And he told me I should view it for a moment. And then he opens the file cabinet drawer that's right on the side of the bed with one hand and keeps the knife up under my heart with the other one. And it's the skeleton head in the cabinet. And he goes rubbing on it, you know. And then he'll look at the movie for a moment. Yeah. Oh, my God. Then he made me lay back on the floor. Uh, he's just looking at me. He put the knife up under my groin area, you know. And then it's like he's just sizing me up or what have you, you know. Looking at different parts of my chest, things like that. Yeah. And he said, you're going to be this beautiful for me, you know. It's like a real-life silence of the lambs. That's yeah. It's unbelievable. So how'd you get out of that? Hmm? Okay. Then when he was doing that, I said, oh, I'm drinking too much beer. I knew I had to get up again. I said, well, let's go to the bathroom again. And I had talked to him and everything, you know, and he, was, he felt more easier with me. Yeah, but then he told me at a point, though, that either I would have to kill him or he would kill me, you know. Yeah, but it got to that point. I said, well, I'll take your uh, pictures or what have you. I'll let you handcuff me. But first, let me go to the bathroom and get another beer. Okay, so he kind of guides me in there and leads me there this time with the door closed. And he's standing in the hallway like, yeah, so I walked there and then I said, give me a beer. Okay, and so he kind of guides me over there. And then I, uh, he had an air conditioner in the front living room, which the back room was really hot. I said, well, let's sit up here for a moment and get a breath of fresh air because it's really hot. Then I go and pose for you and what have you. So we sit on the sofa again, right? And he's sitting there in like a transcendent state, like rocking, like some type of ritual or what have you okay and so at that point um i was contemplating then i said well i'm gonna have to do something now either he's gonna kill me anyway so i might as well at least 
die trying, okay? At least get out trying or whatever, because I wasn't going to stand there. So he was just sitting there like, like I wasn't even there no more in a transcendent state, just rocking and nodding, you know, and stuff like that. And then I said, well, I'm going to go to the bathroom, and he didn't respond right at that moment, okay? So I stood up, right? And I hit him in the head, like he was sitting just the same exact place as you are. And he had his head like turned more to the side, like. So I hit him right here. Okay, so I hit him right here. And his head turned over. And as I was getting up, I kicked him in the face. Because I guess he didn't know I had martial arts experience too. You know, from my brother and my father, which, you know, and everything like that. And then I ran towards the door. And I was trying, I guess God was with me because... I didn't even know which lock to turn. Which of those eight locks? Locks, and I had put my hand on the right lock. Only one was locked? Uh, uh, I, th that one, he had that one locked and one deadbolt locked, but you had your choice. And I made the right choice, so God had to be with me. As, he, as I was turning the door, I saw him swinging a blade at me, right about my head area. So I ducked, and I spin, and I hit him in the groin area. And then he kind of just like, it was like a glancing blow. It really didn't hurt him all that much. So he got up as I was turning the knobs to reach and grab my arm again, you know. And then I had to hit him again. And it just like sit back and come back, you know, and told me that. You know, after he started grabbing me as I was going out the door. You pull yourself away. Right. You run down one flight of stairs. Right. You're in the streets. Right. You run into a cop car right away. Yeah, as soon as I get out, first when I was running through the hall, I guess the people heard the struggle in the building. They asked me what was going on. I was so much in shock. I what couldn't were you say anything. I just kept running until I saw the cops. It was like a half a block as I got outside. Yeah, yeah and the cops was there. Then. And what did you say? Okay. What they, who said what to who? You know, whom? Okay, I stopped the cops. I came up to them. But should I have my attorney up here since cases is pending? Just introduce yourself. Yes, this is S.A. Salat. I'm the uh, attorney representing Mr. Tracy Edwards and his action against the city of Milwaukee. Uh, at that point in time, when, when Tracy ran down the stairs, the officers were parked on the street. He sought their help. They denied him that help. They forced Mr. Edwards to walk back up to the apartment after ridiculing him, asking him, who did you know? Which one of us did you escape from? Because he had a handcuff on. What are you, some type of homosexual in this area? He said, no, my life was just about to be taken upstairs. They said, well, go up there and tell him to take the handcuffs off. He walks upstairs by himself, no assistance from the Milwaukee Police Department, knocks on the door, dumbers open the door and say, come in. I'll take the handcuffs off. Mr. Edwards in fear again runs back downstairs, tells the officer, he won't take the handcuffs off. He want me to come back in. I cannot go back in there. He would kill me. And at that time, that only one officer come upstairs to seek to give him some assistance, and you can take him back into inside the apartment. What happened? All right, as we go back inside, right, me and one officer, the other one was coming through there. So I sit, and he asks Dahmer, was he some type of freak or something, you know? Dahmer agreed with this man. If he said he was, I guess he thought I was, if it was just a homosexual thing or something like that, they'll just forget about it or whatever. He was all cool and calm. Yep. And then the other officer comes upstairs and they asked him where the key is. He told him it's in the bedroom or something, you know? Yeah. But he didn't want the officers to go in there. One was trying to go in. He went in the bedroom and Dharma got real violent and aggressive, you know? He turned back into the person I was telling him about. Because at first the cops would not let me talk. They was telling me to shut up. 
You know, simple as that. I couldn't say anything, you know, until that point. And the officer went, one went in there, and the other one had to just grab Dahmer and throw him on the floor. And the other guy came out with pictures, you know, of the mutilated bodies. Yeah. And then they believed me. I told them where one knife was because I had managed to slip one knife away from this guy. He had knives, like, strapped in all different areas of his body, you know. And I didn't know if he had a gun or not. I didn't know when to make the right move or anything of that nature. Did yeah. the cops check out the refrigerator? No, the you have one officer opened the refrigerator and he threw up. He threw up. And I'm surprised I didn't throw up. It's just like I, God was with me. I didn't have time for panicking. I was so fearful then. You're a lucky man. You <laughs> Mr. Edwards, why did you go back upstairs? I would have wanted to get arrested by those police. I would have done anything to stop from having to go back to that apartment. Well, really, I tried my best to obey laws, you know. So they suggested it to me at that time. I was in such shock. I just done what they told me without even thinking, you know. Well, they say, go ask the guy to take it off of you. So I went upstairs to do such, you know. That's really... So you went back. That is... I agree with the young lady. I old, think that's one of the most incredible black parts male. of the entire story, that you would be forced, after escaping, and realizing what it is that you were escaping <coughs> from, you'd be forced to go back into that same... Uh, into old privileged black male. Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information with victims of white supremacy so that we can quickly replace white supremacy with justice. Uh, this is the Catherine Massey Book Club, fourth and final installment on Lionel Dahmer's A Father's Story. The audio that we started with I told folks last week my intention start off with a snippet Dr. Welsing she visited with us way back when about a decade ago we spent the bulk of the broadcast discussing Jeff Dahmer chocolate factory all of that and how that applies to her theory of white genetic annihilation however last week in reading we heard old Lionel talk about the Jeffrey or the Geraldo Rivera installment from September of 1991. Before we started this book, I knew that a lot of this archival material was probably available. A listener took the time and found the entire Geraldo segment that was mentioned in the book last week. When I took my time to watch that footage, whew, now, the Geraldo program is a 60-minute or was a 60-minute program, 40 minutes of show, 20 minutes of commercial approximately. We heard more than half of that broadcast. Here, old privileged black male Tracy Edwards go to the police with a handcuff, say, hey, help, help, I need help. It's going to kill me. Say, ah, got this old freaky blackmail you some type of freak get on out of here you old freaky blackmail get on back up there and make him take the handcuffs off old freaky blackmail yeah rethinking Ruzi once again blackmail you cannot be a victim of sexual abuse of some sort no way you just old freak they go up and ask old Jeff so you some type of freak Jeff say yep yeah yeah I'm a freak mm-hmm mm-hmm the reason that I played so much was because 
Lionel said he was shocked and appalled. Old Pat Snyder got on there pretending to be friends with his wife Sherry and spreading all these gossip and, and rumors about them. And then they got this fella Nick getting on there saying that <clears throat> he was in some sort of sexual arrangement with Jeffrey growing up. Now all of that is in the segment. But that's at the very end. You have to sit through about 25 minutes of Tracy Edwards telling you all that old freaky Tracy Edwards. And then you got to hear about the other black family, which he does mention before you get to old Pat Snyder and Nick. Lionel said he was shocked and appalled by Pat Snyder and Nick. Man, you're going to have to sit through about 35 minutes. Not quite 35, about 30. You have to sit through about 30 minutes of material that I find substantially more shocking and appalling than what Pat Snyder and Nick had to offer at the end of Geraldo. Anywho, we will get to the book. Last session, Lionel Dahmer, A Father's Story. The super freaky black male. Chapter 10 Jeff's trial began on January 30, 1992. During the two weeks of its proceedings, Sherry and I stayed at a hotel on the west side of town, registered under the fictitious name that we still use. My mother's house was empty by then, up for sale, although there was little interest given what had happened in its basement. Each day the motel van would drop us off some distance from the courthouse, and Sherry and I would walk the rest of the way. By this means, we could conceal the place where we were staying from the press. The first day was a revelation, shocking and disturbing, a frenzy of reporters, of crowds, of harsh lights and jutting microphones. At our first appearance on the street, a swarm of reporters would descend upon us, screaming questions, Have you met with Jeff? What does Jeff say? How do you feel about sitting with the victim's families? They were not really questions, but opportunities to respond. What they wanted was the sound of our voices to go with a glimpse of our faces, a bit of audio to go with the film. Mobbed by people and half-dazed by camera lights, we would struggle up the stairs, sheriff's deputies sometimes rushing forward to escort us the rest of the way into the building. Once inside the courthouse, it became obvious that city and state officials had gone to enormous lengths in order to establish security. Metal detectors had been installed at the entrance of the courtroom, and inside it, dogs sniffed about for bombs. An eight-foot barrier of bulletproof glass had been built in order to protect Jeff. It divided that part of the courtroom in which the actual trial would take place, the judge's bench, along with the prosecution and defense tables, from the spectator's seats. In addition to this security measure, sheriff's deputies had been positioned all about the room. They stood silently, their eyes scanning the room, their hands sometimes fingering their holstered pistols. Overall, both the building and courtroom gave the appearance of an armed camp. It still seemed inconceivable to me, strange and unreal, that all of these preparations, so vast and so expensive, had been caused by something my son had done. 
It was impossible for me to reconcile his passivity and facelessness, the monotone of his speech and the flatness of his personality, with the flurry of activity that surrounded me. Once in the courtroom, we took our assigned seats, the last two of the right-hand row directly facing the judge's bench. By that time, we had been told not to attend the trial because of the danger it posed to our lives. Neither Sherry nor I could do that, however, since we felt it important to show Jeff that we had not abandoned him. To our immediate left, we could see the families of the victims as they filled the more than forty seats that had been assigned to them. On that first day, we saw nothing but horror, hatred, and disgust on the faces of the fathers, mothers, sisters, and brothers of the men my son had killed. A small black woman who had taken a seat next to us was abruptly pulled away. No one wanted to come near us. Flanked by sheriff's deputies, Jeff came into the courtroom dressed in a wrinkled brown jacket that was much too small that made him look seedy and unkempt. His hair was ruffled, and he did not appear clean-shaven. He looked depressed and gave off a sense of embarrassment, of being deeply and helplessly exposed. Despite the graphic quality of his confession, the long hours he'd already spent with various psychiatrists, the torturous and damning light he had shown into the darkest quarters of his life, he still appeared ashamed in the presence of his father. Since Jeff had already pled guilty to the various murder charges that had been brought against him, the purpose of the trial was to determine whether or not he had been insane when he had committed them. It was never a question of guilt, never a question of Jeff's being released, but only of whether he would be placed in a prison or in a mental institution. At the time of the trial, I knew only what had been released to the press. Boyle had not been forthcoming with details. There was much he had not told me. It was the trial that divulged these things, and day after day, as it proceeded, I found myself having to absorb acts even more perverse and horrifying than the murders themselves. I am duty-bound to bring to your attention every single aspect of Mr. Dahmer's life, of Mr. Dahmer's conduct. Boyle began in his initial statement to the jury. Every single aspect of my son's life and crimes would, in fact, be presented during the following two weeks. Nothing would be left out, not one grueling detail. Day by day, both the prosecution and the defense would take all those who listened to them through a nightmare world of horrible teenage fantasies, a world which led inevitably to those unspeakable things my son had done, to murder and evisceration, and even, toward the end, to cannibalism. The sheer horror of Jeff's crimes, the nauseating filth in which he had lived in apartment 213, were, in themselves, stunning to me, unimaginably grotesque and horrifying. One excruciating detail followed another, while Sherry and I sat, frozen in place, at times unable to believe the things we heard, and yet unable to deny that they were true. During the whole course of the trial, while I sat in my place, staring straight ahead, I felt that the acts being described were those of someone I could not possibly know, much less someone I had brought into the world. I felt no connection at all to the unspeakable things that were described while cameras whirred and reporters, scores of them, scribbled notes, bringing these same horrible things to the world at large. For me, the acts that the defense and prosecution teams described during the trial remained at a horror-movie distance.
My son had lived in a hideous world, but I could not see it as a world that bore any relationship to mine. Instead, it was as if I were being forced to watch a horror film I did not want to watch, from which I could learn nothing, and from which I only wanted to escape. Because of that remove, I left Jeff's trial at its conclusion with no more insight into my son or myself than I had had when it had begun. I had attended the trial like an innocent bystander, my mind fixed on the technical aspects of the defense's case, its effort to prove Jeff's insanity. And so, throughout the entire two weeks of the court proceedings, I was able to pigeonhole each individual horror into a neat category of physical or psychological evidence. In that way, I made sure that each item was connected exclusively to Jeff, part of his technical defense, a mere trial exhibit, not a human fact at all, and certainly not part of a larger story that was also mine. And so it was only much later that I began to rethink not only my relationship with Jeff, but with the impulses that had overwhelmed him, and with the acts that he had carried out. Only then did I begin to realize that there were some areas of my son's mind, such as a feeling of a lack of control over many things in my life, which I had held within myself for years. Certainly, Jeff had multiplied his tendencies and sexual perversions exponentially well beyond my understanding, and, of course, far beyond my capacity to even entertain. Nonetheless, I could see their distant origins in myself, and slowly, over time, I began to see him truly as my son in far deeper ways than I had previously imagined. As I began to confront Jeff's childhood imaginings, for example, it became clear to me that they had not always been wholly different from my own. While he was still a teenager, Jeff had been shaken and disturbed by odd thoughts and fantasies, impulses that were abnormal and to some extent edged in violence. He had, for example, dreamed repeatedly of murder. While I had never dreamed of murder, I would often awake with a vague feeling that something seriously bad had happened, usually after an attack by a bully. From approximately the age of eight and up until my early twenties, I had periodically been seized by a horrifying sensation of something remembered, but not directly experienced. Later, when I described my upsetting dreams to Dr. Robert Kirkhart, a nationally renowned clinical psychologist, he remarked that he would have been disappointed in me if I had not had any reaction to attacks from bullies. In the grip of that unreal memory, I would wake up suddenly with the frightening sense of foreboding. Once awakened, I would not be able to recall any of the details, but I remained convinced that something bad had happened. Even though I had no vision of a crime, no physical details, no slaughtered bodies, no weapons, no blood-spattered murder rooms, I nonetheless could not shake myself from the feeling of fear and dread. The sensation would last for no more than a minute or so, but during that awful interval, when I would literally hang between fantasy and reality, I would be terrified. I would feel lost, as if everything had gone out of control. Hot flashes would sweep over me with such shattering force that even in adulthood, I would still be able to remember the terror that had seized me at those moments. As I later both remembered and reconsidered the courtroom description of Jeff's murder of Stephen Tuomi, it was this childhood dream, along with its accompanying sense of helplessness and horror, 
that suddenly returned to me with astonishing clarity and force. Stephen Tuomi was from a small town in Michigan. He was 25 years old. On November 27, 1987, he got off from his job as a cook at George Webb's restaurant. He had been working there since September, always on the third shift, the one that ended at 6 in the morning. Across the street, the 219 Club had just closed, and Tuomi strolled over to mingle with the men who had gathered outside the building. It was there, in front of the club, that he met my son. A few minutes after the meeting, Jeff and Tuomi went to the Ambassador Hotel. They had continued drinking, then both of them had passed out. That was all Jeff was ever able to remember, other than that when he had awakened the following morning, he had found himself lying on top of Tuomi's naked body. According to Jeff's own account, he had eased himself from the body, then, in horror, glanced down and noticed that a trail of blood ran from Tuomi's mouth, that his chest had been beaten in, and that his whole upper body was black and blue. Clearly, Jeff had beaten him to death. But Jeff had no memory of it, none at all. He had awakened, as I had awakened at times in my youth, with a strong but vague feeling that something horrible had happened. The big difference was that Jeff had actually done something deeply awful. I had awakened in a panic that consciousness had soon ended. Jeff had awakened into a nightmare that would never end. Later, after his arrest, after Jeff had admitted not only all the other murders, but the whole dreadful list of the other things he had done, he would continue to insist that he could recall nothing about the actual murder of Stephen Tuomi. He claimed that he had lifted himself up from Tuomi's body and been overcome with shock and horror. Perhaps alone in all the world, I felt I knew exactly what he was talking about, because it had happened to me as well. The only difference, it seemed to me, was that I had awakened out of a nightmare, and my son had awakened into one. The description of the events surrounding the murder of Stephen Hicks called forth other different but no less disturbing associations. Jeff had picked up Hicks on June 18, 1978. He had been driving his mother's car and had spotted Hicks, who was hitchhiking alongside the road. Hicks had taken off his shirt so that he was naked to the waist, and it was this that had initially attracted Jeff. He had pulled the car over, offered Hicks a ride, and then took him to the house on Bath Road. At the house, Jeff offered beer and marijuana. Hicks accepted both. He had also talked about his girlfriend, something which no doubt ended any hope my son might have had for a homosexual encounter. Sometime later, Hicks tried to leave, and it was then that Jeff had grabbed the steel rod of a barbell from his closet and murdered him. Later, when I thought over the courtroom recreation of this first of my son's murders, it was clear that it was the prospect of Hicks' departure that had sent Jeff over the line. This dread of people leaving him had been at the root of more than one of Jeff's murders. In general, Jeff had simply wanted to keep people permanently, to hold them fixedly within his grasp. He had wanted to make them literally a part of him, a permanent part, utterly inseparable from himself. It was a mania that had begun with fantasies of unmoving bodies and proceeded to his practice of drugging men in bathhouses, then on to murder and finally 
to cannibalism, by which practice Jeff had hoped to ensure that his victims would never leave him, that they would be part of him forever. In my own life, I realized that I had had the same extreme fear of abandonment, a fear so deep that it generated a great deal of otherwise inexplicable behavior. It began when I was a very young boy and my mother went into the hospital for an operation. During that time, my aunt and uncle came over to take care of me, but their presence did not relieve what I remember now as a profound sense of isolation and abandonment. My mood darkened, as my mother told me later, and remained in that darkness during all the time of her absence. During all of that extended period, according to my aunt and uncle, whose description was later relayed to my mother, I had cried incessantly and inconsolably. Gripped by what could probably be described as a childhood depression that lasted for many weeks. Shortly after this episode, and after my mother returned home, I developed a severe stuttering problem. I can remember stomping my feet on our kitchen floor in an effort to force the words out. My father took me to special classes to overcome this embarrassing affliction. The kids made fun of it in school, but eventually my dear father's dedication and special classes largely ended the stuttering. I can only imagine how different my life might have been had this morbid fear deepened into pathology. What might I have been, and to what perverse lengths would I have gone, if I had finally developed a psychotic need for things that were fixed in place without wills of their own, motionless? Would I, too, have at last reduced human beings to things that I could keep? Even though I had never reached that extreme, of course I had, it seemed to me, reached others. I had relentlessly clung to a first marriage that was deeply wounded. I had clung to routines and habits of thought. To guide my behavior, I had clung to highly defined personal roles. It struck me that I had clung to all these things because they had given me a profound sense of permanence, of something I could keep. Perhaps I had clung to my roles as father and son for the same reason, because they anchored both my mother and my sons to me, made it impossible for them to drift away. In a sense, I had devoted my life to finding strategies by which I could hold things forever and keep them permanently within my grasp. Even more to the point, however, was the sense of control that my own need for permanence and stability had generated in me, along with the accompanying dread of anything that I could not control. As I rethought my son's crimes, the themes of permanence and control wove in and out like two dark threads, their intersecting lines forming the net that held everything else together. In the months after the trial, as I tried to delve into Jeff's mind, I began to look at the psychiatric testimony which had been given at the trial, but this time in a manner that was considerably different from the way I had listened to it while the trial was still going on. At that time, I had tucked it neatly away, hearing it as technical evidence only, observations that had almost no relationship to my own life. In that way, I had been able to distance myself from what the psychiatric evidence might otherwise mean, both to Jeff and to me. But once I began to explore my own connections to Jeff, the disturbing implications of the psychiatric testimony emerged for the first time. Soon it became obvious to me that the theme of control had played a part in almost every aspect of Jeff's nature. 
It was a fact that it had been pointed out repeatedly in court, both by the defense and the prosecution, and yet, at the time I had heard it, I simply hadn't gotten it. I had filed it under the general category of Jeff's insanity and left it there, dismissing it as just one more cog in the crazy machinery of his profound mental illness. But it was more than a cog, as I have come to realize. It was a vital part of the engine that drove him forward, and it was visible in almost everything he did. Even Jeff's first fantasies involved control. More than anything, he had seen himself laying with someone who was very still. He had not wanted to be constrained by the people who populated his fantasies. He had not wanted them to press their own sexual needs upon him. Instead, he had wanted to control them absolutely, and had been willing to use violence to gain that control. For example, on the first occasion when Jeff actually set out to have sexual relations with another person, he carried a baseball bat with him. He had seen a jogger and was attracted to him. He had subsequently lain in wait, hoping to catch the jogger as he passed him, knock him unconscious, and then lay with him on the ground. Still later, when he began to frequent the bathhouses, he had drugged the men he met there, then lay down beside them and listened to their hearts and stomachs, reducing their individual identities to mere parts and functions, to the sounds that came from their bodies after he had made it impossible for them to speak. As his mania for control deepened, it began to function as a necessary element of his sexual satisfaction, so much so that, in the vast majority of cases, he had not been able to reach orgasm unless his partner was unconscious. But even drugged men finally awakened, and, in doing that, began once again to exercise their own individual wills. By then, Jeff had developed such a psychotic need for control that the mere presence of life itself had come to threaten him. So he began to concentrate on the dead. He looked through the obituary columns, found a funeral notice for an 18-year-old boy, and plotted to dig up the corpse and bring it home so that he could enjoy that level of control which only could be gotten from the dead. By then, fantasies of complete control were the only kinds my son had. I now realized that the need for control and permanence, as well as introversion, were traits that I shared with Jeff. Tragically, Jeff took these traits to extraordinary, twisted, and horrific extremes. Jeff hatched a crude scientific scheme for lobotomizing the men he had already drugged, but who, if not lobotomized, would soon return to consciousness, a state Jeff had come to find unacceptable in another human being. So while they were still alive, my son drilled holes in their skulls and poured muriatic acid into their brains. Usually, it was an experiment that killed his victims immediately, although one of them survived for a full two days. Jeff's hope of making zombies never worked, but he still had other plans. He still had the dead bodies of his victims, bodies he could deflesh and eviscerate, preserving certain parts and devouring others, but always in order to live out his need for complete control. Odd as it seems to me now, as I sat in court and listened to all this, the terrible evidence both of my son's insanity and the crimes that had flowed from it, I could see nothing but their grotesqueness and perversity. 
One memory in particular returned to me. It concerned a little girl named Junie, who lived across the street from me when I was a young boy, around twelve or thirteen. One afternoon I brought her up to my bedroom, lit a candle, sat her in front of it, and began to murmur the you-are-getting-sleepy phrases that I had learned from a book and record I had sent away for some weeks before. They had dealt with hypnotism, and I had sent away for them because, in my own childlike way, I saw its mystifying powers as a means by which I could control people whom I could not otherwise control. It would allow me to turn them into hypnotized zombies so that I could do whatever I wanted with or to them. Junie was my first experiment, and when I brought her to my room that day, I intended to cast a spell over her so that I could control her entirely. With that goal in mind, I told Junie to stare at the candle, and she did so. I told her to close her eyes at the appropriate moment, and she did that too. I told her to breathe deeply, and she did. I told her to raise her arms over her head. She obeyed instantly. I remember that I felt exhilarated as I watched her, felt truly powerful, truly in command of another human being. Junie was doing everything I asked. She was hypnotized, however, she fell off the chair and woke up. Later in life I would often tell this story, but always lightly, as if it were simply a childhood adventure. Thus, even though I was later to make light of the story, it is clear to me now that the act itself betrayed a strong urge to control her. And so now, when I remember this incident, I can no longer see it as a simple childhood prank, a harmless little boy dabbling in a newfound magic. Instead, I remember the sense of power that came over me as Junie sank into her trance. I remember how much I liked controlling her, and how much I enjoyed, however briefly, that sense of giving commands and having them instantly obeyed. I remember all of this as an event in my psychological history that suggests how much, even as a boy, I had yearned to control other people, how powerless I had often been made to feel in the presence of people I did not control. When I look back on my childhood, I see its continuing theme as a reaction against my own pervasive sense of powerlessness, that dreadful feeling that I could not do anything right, could not control anything, could not take charge. More often than anything during my childhood, I was plagued by the certainty that I was both physically weak and intellectually inferior. As a young boy, I was almost the stereotype of the weak, skinny kid, the last to be picked for any sports team. I was the elementary school kid who was bullied, the kid who was easily frightened, the kid who had glasses and was called four eyes. In high school, I was the kid the girls hardly noticed, except as an object of curiosity, the kid who never even had a date until he was 18, the kid who finally decided that a great body was what the girls wanted, and who then methodically went about the task of creating one, working out three times a day until the skinny kid had been replaced by someone else. But if, in the end, I was able to feel less physically inferior, my sense of being intellectually inferior remained very deep and distressing. My parents were both school teachers, and they carried the value system of school teachers. For them, a good academic performance was, to some degree, the measure of overall competence. But I was an average student, slow to learn, particularly in math. 
From the first grade onward, my parents tried to help me become a better student by drilling me. My father spent countless hours tutoring me. My mother spent almost as much time making flip cards in addition and subtraction, multiplication and division, and by constantly quizzing. The idea that I developed was that I had to overstudy everything and that if I did not, I would fail. Other children might pick things up quickly, but I felt that I was not so fortunate. Though my mother never intended it and was only trying to help me, a feeling of personal incompetence overwhelmed me during those early years. It was made more obvious by her extraordinary ability to assert herself, to take charge of things. On one occasion, she berated my little league baseball coach in front of the whole team for not putting me into pitch. It was a forceful and commanding personal style that was sometimes demonstrated in Cub Scouts and other activities. Compared to such a force, I naturally saw myself as weak and inept. As a result, of course, I began to develop a feeling of nearly complete powerlessness and dependency. Even more telling, however, was my mother's tendency to finish things for me before I had a chance to complete them myself. I would start some task, working slowly through it, as I always did, and suddenly my mother would appear, and in a few quick strokes, either of mind or hand, she would finish it for me. Even though done with a helpful, loving intention, such gestures powerfully reinforced my sense of myself as slow and inept and caused me to doubt my ability to do things, to carry through, to complete even the simplest tasks. The net effect was corrosive, leaving me feeling undermined and powerless. In retrospect, I can see this feeling of being powerless may have led to my adolescent interest in making percussion bombs. My initial interest in making sound explosives was first kindled by my Boy Scout leader who showed us how to make simple explosive devices with simple ingredients. While still in high school, I sent away for certain chemicals that were too dangerous to be included in a department store chemistry set. When they arrived, I mixed them into an explosive mixture that could be set off by percussion, that is, by throwing it or dropping it. Then I poured the explosive powder into a homemade cardboard tube with a cardboard bottom. I topped the mixture with BB pellets, which more or less turned it into a sound grenade. On one occasion, a boy riding a bike was so startled by the sound of the explosion, he fell off his bicycle. Another time, I gave one to my friend Tom Junk, who dropped it from the third-floor stairwell of our school, setting off an explosion that was so loud that a group of teachers and the principal gathered in the hallway, holding students back in case the bomb was not spent. They never found out who made or dropped the bomb, but the kids in my school knew who the bomb maker was, and I got a great sense of control and respect from them for being able to create such a powerful device. Of course, edgy pranks are not uncommon in adolescence, but I now recognize that my interest in making explosives came from a need to assert myself, to feel less threatened. Plagued by feelings of both physical and intellectual inferiority, a bomb afforded me a great sense of control. Although I didn't talk about it much, it gave me a sense of power. It was my way of protecting myself and letting the world know that I was not to be trifled with that I was not the weak, dull, skinny runt they imagined me to be. 
To some part of me, the ability to make a bomb made me formidable, and in doing so, it also made me visible. With the bomb, I was no longer a faceless non-entity. As the years passed, of course, I put my bombs aside. I found other ways of asserting myself and gaining a sense of control. I developed other, less dangerous strategies, but at times even these still seemed to be driven by a sense of desperation, compelled by feelings of inferiority and a frantic need to control every aspect of my life. As a young man, I had become a bodybuilder in order to gain power physically. In college, I relentlessly pursued one degree after another until I finally got my claim to intellectual power, a Ph.D., by those means, I fought my way out of childhood, leaving sound bombs and hypnotism behind me like forgotten toys. Under the dark and seemingly inescapable shadow of my son's life, I often reflect on my own childhood. Theoretically, I know we all view the past through the lens of the present, but even knowing that, it is still hard to view my own childhood in an innocent light. Often my childhood memories are locked in a bleak cell darkened by questions and dread. How close was I to going down a path Jeff went? Was it the difference of choices I did or didn't make? Was it due to good or bad genetic luck? I'll never know, but I can't help but wonder if my interest in hypnotization and making explosive devices was something other than a boy's fascination with things unknown. When I wired the couch in our living room to give cousins a little electric shock, was that merely a practical joke? And what about my need for control? Were all these things, and many others, nothing more than normal childhood thoughts and actions? Or were some of them early expressions of something dangerous in me, something that might finally have attached itself to my sexuality, and in doing that, turned me into the man my son became. Chapter 11 Jeff's trial ended on Friday, February 14, 1992. In his closing statement, Boyle tried once again to show that although Jeff had done terrible things, he had done them in a state of madness. Although he had known what he had done, Boyle argued, he had not been able to control himself. The prosecutor, of course, said otherwise, dismissing the defense's insanity plea as nothing more than a means by which Jeff could escape responsibility for his crimes. On Saturday, February 15th, at a little after four o'clock, Sherry and I returned to the courtroom to hear the jury's decision. As count after count was read, the verdict remained the same. They found that Jeff had not suffered from any mental disease and held him fully responsible for his crimes. There was a round of cheers from the victim's families as well as from other people in the courtroom. Sherry and I sat silently, our faces very still. Although tense at first, our relationship with the victim's families had improved during the preceding two weeks. On one occasion, during a break in the proceedings, Mrs. Hughes, Tony Hughes's mother had approached us, assuring us that she bore us no ill will, that she did not blame us for what Jeff had done. Sherry and I had each hugged her and expressed our great sympathy for what had happened to her son. 
In addition to Mrs. Hughes, a Reverend Jean Champion had also approached us, trying to bridge the gap between us and the victims' families. But the tension had begun to build again as the trial came to an end, and it only increased as we reached the day Jeff was to be sentenced. That day was Monday, February 17, 1992, and Jeff arrived dressed in bright orange prison clothes. He took his seat before the judge and waited for victim impact statements, a procedure that allows crime victims to speak directly to the judge before he passes sentence. During the next few minutes, as Sherry and I looked on, several members of the victim's family spoke about what my son had done to them. Mrs. Hughes, the mother of Tony Hughes, was very dignified. She spoke of her son, then made the American Sign Language symbol for I Love You. Other family members were equally dignified. They talked about their loss, about how much they loved and missed the son or brother my son had taken from them. They were emotional, as they had a right to be, but they remained carefully controlled. Only Rita Isabel, the sister of Errol Lindsay, lost control. Shouting obscenities, she actually stepped from behind the podium and rushed at Jeff. Court officials restrained her, and after that the judge refused to allow any more statements. Then Jeff spoke, his voice very quiet. I am so very sorry, he said. After the decision, Jeff was rushed directly back to the library adjacent to the judge's chambers. We were allowed to see him for only a few minutes. He was very shaken, trembling, nearly in tears. He was clearly shocked that he had been sentenced to prison rather than a mental institution. We had ten minutes to say goodbye to Jeff. For the first time, I saw him frightened about being sent to prison rather than a mental facility. We held him, told him we loved him, and I said a prayer for us all. Then we waited in another room while the courtroom was cleared and it was safe for us to leave the building. While there, a sheriff's deputy handed me a clear plastic bag that contained Jeff's clothes. We exited through a maze of corridors and staircases until we were finally escorted through the kitchen and out into the unmarked sheriff's car that whisked us away from the press frenzy. The speed at which it had all come to an end was blinding, perhaps even a bit anticlimactic. Within an instant, it was over. A quick goodbye, and my son was gone. At the end of Jeff's trial, conviction, and sentencing, I suppose Sherry and I expected our lives to return to something that at least resembled normalcy. We gave what we fully expected to be our final interview on the case, the two of us once again speaking on the Inside Edition. During the interview, Sherry wept for the suffering of the victim's families. I expressed my sorrow as well but then went on to suggest that my son's madness might well have been caused by the prescribed medications Joyce had taken during her pregnancy. While it is true, of course, that the medications may not have contributed anything to Jeff's equation, it is also true that no one at any time addressed the issue of possible genetic changes during conception and the early stages of pregnancy. Clearly, at that time, any deeper consideration of the relationship I had with Jeff either emotionally or biologically, still remained beyond my grasp. In the meantime, Jeff had been sent to Columbia Correctional Institution, a full 11-hour drive from our home outside Akron. Little by little, as the weeks passed, there were fewer articles in the press. 
fewer episodes in the news. I went back to my job and Sherry went back to hers. We still received crank phone calls from time to time and we still receive kind, sympathetic letters. As a father, it was both my duty and my desire to keep in touch with Jeff, despite the distance, to help him in any way I could. I also felt it my duty to change his legal counsel. Consequently, Robert and Joyce Mozenter were hired to represent Jeff in his upcoming hearing in Akron, the one during which he intended to plead guilty to the murder of Stephen Hicks, a murder which had occurred in Ohio and for which he could not be tried in Wisconsin. I did not see that there was much more that I could do for Jeff. He was now totally in the hands of other people. They would decide what he wore, what he ate, where he slept, what medication, if any, he received. My fatherly duties had been reduced to the provision of a few small services, none of them basic. As a father, my role had almost disappeared. But as a son, it was becoming more arduous. Shortly after Jeff's trial, it became obvious that my mother could not continue to live in her apartment, even with the custodial care that had been provided for her. From visit to visit, it was clear that she was failing rapidly. At night, she was rarely lucid, and it had become increasingly difficult to keep her in bed or to maintain any form of conversation. Even more trying was the fact that she absolutely could not accept the apartment as her home. It was a strange place to her, and she could not adapt to it. Even so, there was no question but that she could not return to the house in West Alice. And so it became necessary to find another place for my mother to live. We found one a few weeks later, and on March 29th, Sherry and I went to gather my mother's things from the apartment she had lived in since Jeff's arrest. It was a sad gathering, as I wrote later to Jeff, then adopted my usual tone of fatherly guidance. I told him to take his medication dutifully, to use his mind to a sense of satisfaction, and to stay well mentally with God's intervention and control. You are loved greatly by me, I wrote at the end of the letter, allowing the single exclamation point to carry the weight of my emotions. During the next few weeks, I wrote to Jeff often. In a letter written on April 3rd, I offered yet more practical advice. I told Jeff that I hoped that he would get increasingly better with respect to feeling resigned to your situation. At the same time, I added that he should resolve to accomplish some goals that you will decide. I told him that I knew it must be hard for him to adjust to prison, but that I recognized that life outside of it must have been a torment too. A few weeks after Jeff had been transferred to Columbia Correctional Institution, Boyle faxed a letter telling me that Jeff was back in segregation for having secreted a razor blade in his cell. It had been discovered in a routine check of his personal property, and it was the type used in plastic disposable razors. In response, I called CCI and spoke with Jeff's prison psychiatrist. He assured me that the prison took Jeff's attempt to steal a razor blade very seriously and that he had been placed on suicide watch. In addition, he said, Jeff had been put on Prozac, a potent antidepressant which he thought would be able to lift Jeff out of his severe depression. This would not happen immediately, he added, since it would take a couple of weeks for the drug to build up in his system. 
A short time later, Sherry and I drove first to Milwaukee, then the additional two-hour drive to Columbia Correctional Institution. When Jeff was brought into the visiting room, he appeared haggard and depressed, his hair disheveled, his face unshaven. He looked as if he had not slept for a long time. After the usual greetings, I asked about the razor. I took it in case it got too bad in the future, Jeff told me. I tried to be encouraging to help him make the best he could of his life. He responded, as he always had, nodded quietly, agreeing with everything I said but offering very little in return. After that, we talked about my mother's condition, what he had been eating, the condition of our cats. On our way out, prison authorities gave us a box of items which had been sent to Jeff along with a vast amount of mail. As we drove home that evening, Sherry began reading the letters to me as she sat in the passenger seat, one hand holding the flashlight she needed to see the writing clearly. The variety was astonishing, letters that began with such salutations as, Greetings in the name of the great I am, or simply, Hello, it's me again, and ending with everything from, Sincerely a servant of the King of Kings, to, lonesomely yours. Predictably, a great many were religious, written by people who were attempting to save Jeff's soul, and who often included religious literature of one kind or another, usually pamphlets small enough to be tucked into a regular letter envelope. A few notes were from teenagers seeking prison pen pals. Still fewer were frankly sexual, some from men, some from women, but all of them filled with descriptions far too explicit to be mentioned here. There were love letters as well. One woman wrote to tell Jeff that she had bleached her jeans and emblazoned his initials on them. We are destined to be together, another woman wrote. In still other letters, Jeff was addressed as Babe, Doll, Darling, My Lovely. One woman described him as Cute and Keen. Other people wrote Jeff in less romantic terms. You seem like a very intelligent person to me, one man wrote. I mean, you was making nine dollars an hour. Some letters came from autograph seekers and souvenir hunters. Many requested that Jeff meet with them in prison. One woman asked only that he agree to meet with her in heaven. Other letters kept Jeff up to date on the latest Jeffrey Dahmer jokes. One woman sent him all the lyrics to, You've Got a Friend. Still fewer came from people who were deeply disturbed themselves. Of these, some were relatively mild. My dream told me that your mental illness was complex but explainable, one man wrote, just like mine was. Another was more chilling. The doctors at this institution underestimate what I am capable of. Still others suggested an even deeper derangement. I am sure the mutilation of my first sucker will be very crudely done. Racists sent my son their heartfelt congratulations for having murdered so many young black men. One wanted to know whether he had picked up his ideas while stationed in Germany. In a sense, letters such as these were dismissible. They spoke to a small and deeply troubled segment of the population. There were others, however, that seemed to embrace a larger group, the whole vast sadness of the world. I know what it's like to be lonely, one woman wrote. 
My husband was my whole world, and when he died I wanted to go with him. Letter after letter formed a long chain of immemorial complaint. My fiancé is an alcoholic. I've just broken up with my boyfriend. I get dizzy spells. I am on Dilantin for my epilepsy. I have this problem with my husband. I wish I could go back to my high school years. I never went to college. I have trouble learning how to back the van up at work. I can't express myself on paper. I get pissed off all the time. My plant just had another layoff. No one likes my music. No one understands me. No one cares. Sometimes all I feel is hate. Some of these letters clearly deepened into grave emotional distress. When I go to sleep, I die, wrote one woman. I feel so miserable, I just don't care, said another. To these were added dozens of other similar complaints. I can't sleep anymore. I am always shaking. I feel so lost. I feel numb. I seem so negative all the time. I am so limited. Clearly, some of these people believed that in some bizarre way, my son could rescue them from lives in which they felt entrapped. Only you can calm me down, one woman wrote. Occasionally, there was even the hint that a connection to my son would make a sinister solution possible. After I see you, a woman wrote, the institution will deal with my husband. As letters, they came by the hundreds, some with envelopes bearing drawings of animals, religious scenes or scriptures, some merely bearing quiet pleas for miraculous assistance. S.O.S. help me, one said. Another delicately warned, small hearts enclosed. As we drove through the night, Sherry would often break down as she read these letters, the flashlight trembling in her hand, tears rolling down her cheeks. It was a response that baffled me in its intensity and passion, in the way it demonstrated a level of sympathy and pity that I simply could not reach. Watching her, I often wondered why, in a world of so much feeling, I could express so little. On May 1, 1992, Jeff appeared in criminal court in Akron, Ohio, and pleaded guilty to the murder of Stephen Hicks. He was flown down from the Columbia Correctional Institution, arriving somewhat early, and through the auspices of Sheriff Troutman and the Summit County Sheriff's Department, Sherry and I were able to visit with him for a short time on the night before the scheduled hearing. We met Jeff at the Summit County Sheriff's Department. He looked much better than usual, and although he was dressed in casual prison clothes, he looked very neat and clean. He was nervous, as he was so often nervous, but he was not entirely withdrawn. For about half an hour, we talked about things peripherally related to the hearing, and I assured him that he would only be in court for an hour or so, and that there was no need for him to be nervous. The proceedings, I told him, were cut and dried. There would be no surprises of any kind. The next day, only a few minutes before the hearing, Sherry and I met with Jeff again. At this meeting, Jeff was clearly apprehensive about the scheduled hearing. He feared the same kind of media assault he had faced in Milwaukee, but in addition, he dreaded the prospect of confronting the parents of Stephen Hicks or of hearing, once again, 
the details of their son's murder. We said a brief prayer as we all held hands. "'It'll be all right, Jeff,' I assured him. He did not look so sure. "'It's just a formal thing,' I added, "'something that you have to do.' Jeff nodded softly, as resigned as ever. I smiled. "'You look good, Jeff,' I said. Which was true. He was dressed in a clean suit and neat dress shirt, but had not yet put on his tie. "'You should do your tie now,' I told him. "'We'll probably be going into the courtroom soon.' Jeff looked at me helplessly. "'Go ahead,' I said. "'Tie your tie.' Jeff didn't move. "'I can't,' he said. "'Why not?' He shrugged. "'I don't remember how,' he said. And so I stepped up to him, wrapped the tie around his neck, knotted it, and drew it up neatly against his throat. "'Now it looks good,' I said. Jeff smiled slightly. "'Thanks, Dad,' he said. Within moments, he was led into the courtroom. The hearing lasted little more than an hour. The Mozenters were there as Jeff's lawyers, and Larry Viaman appeared as local counsel on Jeff's behalf. Overall, the proceeding was handled with great dignity. There were no legal pyrotechnics, no press frenzy. At the end of it, Jeff was sentenced to life imprisonment without possibility of parole. Once the hearing was over, Jeff was quickly taken back to the waiting room, where we were given five minutes to say goodbye. He was still wearing the tie I had knotted for him. A few weeks later, on June 9, 1992, I assured Jeff that I would soon be able to pick up those of his personal possessions which the police had seized from his apartment in Milwaukee. Then, predictably, I launched into a numbing discussion of my work. I just got finished analyzing some epoxy compounds at the lab, I wrote. You have probably used or heard of epoxy cement at some time. These samples contain the epoxy group COC, and the researchers who submitted these samples to me want to know the percentage of this group in the samples. Now, when I look at these passages from my correspondence with Jeff, I see them as the perfect representatives of that part of my fatherhood, which had always remained intransigently evasive and uninsightful. In its concentration on the trivial minutiae of life, in its emphasis and lack of meaning, in the way it substitutes details for substance, information for feeling, it exhibited my continued determination to evade the disturbing core of both myself and my son, along with the line that indisputably connected us. In another letter, this one written on July 2nd, the same characteristics are equally apparent. In this case, my evasion takes the form of an irrelevant weather report. I am sitting in my office. It is hot and humid outside. The grass is turning brown due to the lack of rain around here. I have a small fan mounted beside my desk, sitting on top of the cold air register blowing toward me. And so on, and so on, and so on. The utter emptiness of such lines, their meaningless asides, make the numbing quality of my relationship with him very clear to me. I remember how, years before, after I had discovered Jeff living alone and more or less abandoned in the Bath Road house, I had essentially turned him over to Sherry while frantically searching for my other son, making call after call in a desperate attempt to locate Dave, 
while all the time Jeff remained only a few miles away, easily within my physical reach, yet far more lost than Dave, far more deprived, and, in the deepest sense, as I have come to understand, far more like me than I could have then imagined. Context of White Supremacy, the Catherine Massey Book Club. Almost done. We'll have our last uh, little snippet, audio segment number two, and then we will wrap it up for Lionel Dahmer's A Father's Story. If you have thoughts, observations, questions, again, comparison, contrast to old Sue Klebold, the number to dial 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Get our concluding thoughts, final observations in as we wrap it all up for old Lionel Dahmer this week. Uh, let's see, I'll get in one of our emails and then we'll nab folks uh, who dialed in and had their observations, thoughts to share as well. Uh, let's see, we had one person uh, for the last three books that we've read, we have had somehow, some way, every time someone finish the book, sometimes multiple folks, go ahead and read in advance, finish the whole book, way before we did on the book club uh, this time around had that happen folks sent their notes in uh, I think like three weeks ago so I had to wait until we could catch up to them so I could share email number one I've completed the reading of Lionel Dahmer's A Father's Story Lionel reveals a more fact-based analytical less emotional account what kind of a mother was Joyce if she is on drugs and lashing out all the time that's his wife and he said I'm I'm dumping the, the children off on her like, you got it right Joyce you got it right okay I'm out I'm gonna go back to the lab because I don't even uh, do all this connecting stuff you know, talk about the weather you know. he continues Lionel is emotionally absent is an emotionally absent father and husband always escaping his family what I just said his wife attacked him with a knife in rage and he left two small boys with her for hours on end father superior folks wonder how Jeff got that hernia Joyce question I don't know if I believe it was a birth defect and then his fear of being castrated to be white is to perform the role of being an upstanding moral human being when in reality being emotionally stunted and or absent Lionel was too passive hoping diabolical Jeff would be a normal race soldier without a badge and not an odd, odd strange peculiar race soldier <clears throat> Jeffrey is a child alcoholic just like Dylan Vodka Klebold 
uh, read another book at the same time as Klebold's. The book discusses a theory about how early humans evolved. The theory suggests that psychopaths like Dahmer and other mass murderers were genetically selected for especially uh, in males as a defense mechanism for the species. That sounds like wisdom of psychopaths. Dahmer was created by Joyce and Lionel's inability and outright refusal to constructively deal with emotions and racists refusal to produce justice doesn't really sound like they were that vested in parenting Am I, I don't have children but just from you know what we've read it just it doesn't really I mean for sure for I feel like Lionel would be the first one to agree with brother Jeff like you're right brother Jeff yeah yeah I was not too not too vested in the parenting thing and she's on drugs and all the rest I mean Anyway, he continues, uh, Sue conniving Klebold or her ghostwriter used this book as a template. Hmm. I have to think about that. Now, this was published well in like uh, 20 years, more than 20 years, in fact, in advance of Sue Klebold's uh, memoir being published. Right. And in fact, this book was published before Columbine even happened. So that, that's what I said. Dale read they could have read this book sue and company they could have read this book even before columbine happened it was popular and reb and dill they were uh Dahmer fans so it's possible they could have read this book uh lionel like klebold sees his adult son as an infant toddler he wants to freeze him as a child like an object he can control children are people not objects objects are disposable to people with this mentality we do like in the system of white supremacy i think children are definitely objectified it's like you know just kind of get them to pose on tiktok and you know put little goofy outfits on and that's so kind of a trinket type that's how you get that old adopt a negro from south africa or adopt some colored boy from south korea or something like that so you can show them off they come kind of an accessory type of a thing object continues uh the conversation between lionel and jeff in prison feels robotic they don't really face the problem barely discuss it that's probably all of their conversations that's why he was saying you know talk about the weather and you know painted the garage the other day you know dripped a little bit of paint on the floor you know dropped the brush a few times (laughs) man come on let's get back to the chomping man Lionel deflecting from the fact that Dahmer was a race soldier without a badge. Of course, it was easy for Dahmer to find black males. They were placed in their race camps for mistreatment by racists like Dahmer. Even Jeff's first fantasies and and, even the sundown town racially restricted regions that we've heard so many of them mentioned, Wisconsin, Ohio, all these towns where there are no black people. Jeff couldn't have been chomping on Negroes there. Even that you are being able to go and hang out in these places and you can be a plugger where you're not very smart and all of the all of that system of white supremacy at work even Jeff's first fantasies involved controlled he had not wanted them to press their sexual needs upon him who pressed their sexual needs on Jeff as a child what caused hernia in his genitals again question or is this need for control a trait he inherited from Lionel he hypnotized a girl in his bedroom many uh, question marks I said the same thing like dang is that like I was even thinking like wait a minute is he talking about Jeff doing the hypnotize like Lionel is doing the hypnotize like how do you even how do you where did you learn how to hypnotize people like what is woof 
head is spinning. All righty. Uh, let's see. Uh, Star Six One folks have uh, comments they want to get into. Wrap up on old Lionel Dahmer's uh, memoir. Let's see. I'll uh, get in a few of my notes. I'll nab some of our other questions and then see if folks have their final comments to share. Let's see. Uh, Go back to the beginning of chapter 10 where we started at for today. Alrighty. And again, if you do not have the book, there are, just like with Sue Klebold's book, there are a lot of pictures of very young Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, he does have some photos of uh, like over 20 Dahmer, over 25 Dahmer when he was a little bit older, but there are a lot of pictures of him as like a teen when he's in high school, even younger, some of them, when he was a really young child. I mean, really. Uh, <sighs> we're talking about uh, someone who uh, was not a child, even at the time of these murders and such, like, really. And he even said that explicitly in the text that he was trying to uh, rewind since there was so much talk about him being a monster and a racist cannibal. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. we want to go back, rewind, capture some of his youth, innocence as a child, all of that. Come on, Sue Klebold did the same thing. Uh, even that I have a slight, I'm slightly more acceptable of Sue Klebold doing it because Dylan Klebold actually was a child even at the time that he committed all of his mass murder and bombings. Uh, so chapter 10, uh, let's see. They wanted to emphasize that Jeff had not been abandoned. Uh, I think that's important. System of racism, white supremacy, regardless of what you do, if you are classified as white, you are not supposed to be thrown off the team. We're with you. We're hanging in. You know, we didn't forget about you, old Jeff. Uh, let's see. The They say on the first day, we saw nothing but horror, hatred, and disgust on the faces. This is talking uh, for the trial. Uh, horror, hatred, and disgust on the faces of the fathers, mothers, sisters, and brothers of the men my son had killed. Some of these folks are children, not men. A small black woman who'd taken a seat next to us was abruptly pulled away. No one wanted to come near us. Given the circumstances, wouldn't that be understandable? What are they supposed to do? Like come in and give you a big bear hug and, you know, a hug. We forgive you. Like what? All of that seems very reasonable. And even the hatred aspect, that's one that I give great pause. Like, really? They were looking at you specifically with hatred. Hmm. Particularly given everything that we heard from Sue Klebold in the last book. Yeah. Yeah. They, they have all this is on video court TV and stuff. They have pictures and all the rest of it. They would have to show me that you were getting mean mugged in the courtroom and, you know, had to have security when you left and all that. Yeah. Uh, let's see. He continues, he had done this last week, but he just does more of it this week, saying that he gets the details from the trial about what Jeff had done. He could see the distant origins in myself, whatever that means. And slowly over time, I began to see him truly as my son in far deeper ways than I had previously imagined. Mm. This does not sound like Sue Klebold at all. Uh, let's see, he continues uh, going into some of the details the Steve 
Tuomi is uh, classified as white. Uh, at least that's what it looks like to me from the photos. Again, not all of the people that he killed and everything uh, were non-white people. He did have a few white people, um, Steve Tuomi being one of them. Uh, I did not look yet to see about uh, Stephen Hicks, uh, see if he's classified as white or non-white. Uh, let's see. When he drifts into all of this about uh, being teased at school, like he goes into it in a few different ways. First, he talks about the teasing aspect because he had some sort of speech impediment. Uh, he says that his parents had the resources to get him classes to correct this problem. Man, system of white supremacy. If he had been classified as non-white, things could have been very different. He could have had that speech impediment forever. Maybe he doesn't get a Ph.D. And the whole tra trajectory of his life could be substantially different uh, without those resources. Maybe instead of a few, you know, one tough year of teasing from your white classmates, it could have been an entire lifetime of teasing and ostracization and lack of confidence and all the rest of it because you didn't have the resources to go and get that speech impediment corrected. Anyway, he says the kids made fun of it as speeching uh, impediment or whatever it was. Uh, but eventually my dear father's dedication to special classes largely ended the stuttering. Uh, he says, uh, the sense of control that my own need for permanence and stability had generated in me along with the accompanying dread of anything I could not control as rethought my son as I rethought my son's crimes the themes of permanence and control wove in and out like two dark threads their intersecting lines forming the net that held everything else together and he has lots of uh, metaphors and such in there but this notion of control even greatly reminded me of Dr. Marimba Ani uh, Yurugu she has a whole section where she talks about the white scientist and wanting to control everything the creator all the non-white people the planet everything she talks about this exactly as being a core component uh, of white uh, personality why they behave in the way in the manner that they do um, let's see the, the, this notion of control having control over these victims uh, control over the environment even in fact Lionel has talked throughout the text memoir about he always wants to retreat back to the place where he has control the lab he doesn't have that control he has to come out and talk to people and we got to talk about something more than the weather and talk about my wife and her drug problem and talk about our crazy children and all the rest like, oof, oof, that's beyond my control oof. Uh, let's see he talks off <laughs> He talks all this about hypnotizing Junie when he was a child, which totally, I, I was stunned. Like I said, was he talking about Jeff here? Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Am I, did I miss something? Like, wait a minute. You, what, what? He says, no, he's talking about him. He's a child. He's going to cast a spell over her. And uh, Man, like if he had, if it had just been, this was like a joke. We had saw something on a TV where they had the whole watch set up and, you know, we're doing some sort of hypnotized thing or whatever. Like, oh, that's cute. You know, we'll try that out, blah, 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 that type of thing. But I mean, what? <laughs> like He was almost talking like this, that he was able to do this, that she closed her eyes, Junie, and she obeyed. And like, what in the world? Where did, <sighs> what book do you, does anyone hear? Do you know how to hypnotize someone? Have you done that before? Have you been hypnotized yourself? Do you know the resources to go to learn this whole procedure? Because I don't. Uh, we, we are right back in the Columbine. He says, 
when he remembers this incident talking about hypnotizing Juni, I can no longer see it as a simple childhood prank. Come back to the pranks and practical practical jokes. Ed talked about that throughout this text. We talked about that throughout uh, Columbine. I'd said the last series of books because it keeps coming up. White culture, all these pranks and practical jokes to scare somebody and deceive them and all of that. Crack up laughing about it. Uh, let's see. All this talk where Lionel is saying that he was uh, physically weak, intellectually inferior as a young boy. I was a stereotype of this weak, got to say it again, skinny uh, kid, the last to be picked for any sports team. I was the elementary school kid who was bullied, uh, kid who was easily frightened, the kid who had four glasses and four eyes and all the rest of it. Man, one, <laughs> we just heard this. Columbine allegedly old deal and vodka they were bullied and, and even the physical intellectually inferior and all the rest of it like man so much of it to me at least uh, strikes me as being classified as white you're in a system of racism white supremacy you have all of this and still you feel inferior weak timid passive can't speak up no like what in the world what in the world what more welfare and affirmative action support do you need man and then you go and get all this camouflage go get a phd to cover up for that so i can now i can flex my intellectual power and you can't even take care of your lame wayward children Uh, let's see pattern that runs i think throughout the system of racism white supremacy unless i'm mistaken uh, let's see. So he's talking about this is Lionel. He's talking about uh, his childhood. So he's teased, berated, blah blah blah, speech impediment, blah blah. So he's doing the little league baseball. He says his mom gets upset because the coach doesn't white coach doesn't put him in to pitch. Now I had to pause on this like now wait a minute. Now, this is not 21st century. This is a long time ago when Lionel died. He's in his 80s now. He's like Mr. Fuller's age. This has been a long time ago. This has been like around like 1950s maybe even before that or it could be either side but whatever around 1950s you're telling me that a white woman at this time had the gall to go out in public no less and fuss at a white man hey hey you can put my son in what are you, what are you, what's wrong with you Lionel is great that is a golden glove golden arm pitcher you put my child in what is wrong with you get your acting what I thought this what, the, what they set up and tell us white male patriarchy and all that this is this would be way in advance of women's lib and Ms. magazine and all the rest this would have been way before all of that affirmative action to get these white women jobs and all that we didn't have any women soccer team and all that stuff what do you mean she went out there and fussed at him I thought she would know her place shut up get in the kitchen and get me a sandwich maybe I'm mistaken uh, he says, while still in high school, I said, oh, man, why did we read this here book? I know we got delinquents in the listening audience. Why did we read this book? Lionel said, while still in high school, I sent away for certain chemicals that were too dangerous to be included in a department store chemistry set. When they arrived, I mixed them into an explosive mixture that could be set off by percussion. 
that is, by throwing it or dropping it. Then I poured the explosive powder into a homemade cardboard tube with a cardboard bottom. I topped the mixture with BB pellets, shrapnel, which more or less turned it into a sound grenade. On one occasion, a boy riding a bike was so startled by the sound of the explosion, he fell off his bike. Another time, I gave one to my friend, Tom Yunk, I wonder if he's still alive, who dropped it from the third floor stairwell of our school. I thought he was going to say he peed off the roof. Setting off an explosion that was so loud that a group of teachers and the principal gathered in the hallway holding students back in case the bomb was not spent. They never found out who made or dropped the bomb, but the kids in my school knew who the bomb maker was and I got a great sense of control and respect from them for being able to create such a powerful device. Of course, edgy pranks are not uncommon in adolescence, but I now recognize that my interest in making explosives came from a need to assert myself to feel less threatened. What in the Columbine deal? I don't even know where to begin with that one. Like, I was almost like, pause. Let's go back and hear that one more time. Just for Dill. Just for Red. What in the that right there is why we read this book right now. What in the world? You let off a bomb in the school and they don't even take the time to find out who did this. They know who did it and you got ooh, we can't mess with the old four eyes. Now you see that bomb, you almost blew the half of the cafeteria off. Woof, man, that's the dude, right? You got to go get with him. Where'd you get them chemicals? Where you ordered from where? Let me get that. Anarchist cook. Okay, I'm going to get that after school. This is just white print. Anybody here? Anybody? I know we got some delinquents. Is that widespread? We got lots of you all. You got your, your chemistry set and such. You made a few percussion bombs. You know, we, we got most of you all said you didn't pee off the roof. We'll take you at your word, I guess. Anybody, you, you went to school and you launched pipe bombs, percussion bombs from the roof. That's that's your childhood. We got anybody you can relate. You did this. You paused, got your act together, got out of the criminal mischief and, you know, decided to put all that tinkering and scientific know-how to good use. Go out there and help us defeat the Rona. Folks who dialed in, let us know. So apparently we don't have folks who pee off the roof. Do we have folks who be, made the bombs, went to school and dropped bombs, or went to the park and, wow, percussion bombs and knocking children off their bikes. And we got anybody that was your that was your childhood? That's familiar. Any of our listening audience? Let's see. Good evening, man. We heard. Oh, we got one delinquent. Let's see. Fresh princess. Yes, ma'am. Uh, did not make any bombs. I found it odd that 
bomb making came up again. And I noticed that he learned how to make a bomb in the Boy Scout. And I want to say I watched a Boy Scout documentary recently about them molesting people in the Boy Scouts. And they talked about in that documentary troop leaders teaching them how to make bombs. And I'm like, is this a thing? Like, people are showing children how to make bombs. And I also noticed that the Jeffrey Dahmer Sr. said he put BB gun pellets in there. And I'm like, so you made you made a pipe bomb, basically. That's what it sounds like. Um, yeah, I think I, I really appreciate that he is being introspective and comparing his pathology to his son's uh, issues and finding some similarities. And I guess that's where he was able to empathize with him in terms of saying, you know, it could have, I could have come out the same way. I think the father doesn't really want to know any more than what he's heard, which is why he keeps the conversation kind of surface level uh, when he goes to visit him. I want to say in comparison to Sue, where Sue acted like she did everything right and she's making that tapioca pudding or whatever, um, Jeffrey Dahmer's father really is considering how, you know, where things may have gone wrong. And I want to say he's hinting more or less to it's hereditary, like there's some type of weird um, mental illness thing. I never thought about the mother hurting him physically, and that's where the hernia came from. So that was a really good observation. Uh, I just, I just noticed the bombs and the ordering of chemicals. Like, can you just order as a child? Just order chemicals in the mail. Like, where do you even get the money to do that? Um, yeah, that's. This is my observation. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Didn't we ask those same questions with Reb and Vodka, which would have to be, I'd have to do the math, but I mean, I said if we go with approximately 1950s for somewhere around Lionel Dahmer's childhood, so we fast forward almost 50 years, a half a century. It's, dang, is it that easy for white children to go and get bomb-making materials and what the Boy Scouts teach you how to make bombs when they're not molesting children. Dang! What? What? Is this white culture? Hmm. Ted Kaczynski? What was the summer blockbuster? Oppenheimer. Hmm. 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 Any hoodles, uh, let's see, other folks who, and even, hey, Lionel, now he said, hey, of course, edgy pranks, talking about bomb making, are not uncommon, double negative, in adolescence. The same thing they said in Columbine. Everybody, who didn't have Anarchist Cookbook, man? Who didn't make a pipe bomb every now and then? What, <laughs> come on, go out in the woods and blow up something? Hey, that's the... <laughs> Why join the Cub Scouts, the Boy Scouts, if you're not going to get to blow up a few things? Other folks dialed in with a hand up, bomb makers potentially. 
Matthew. Lauren, yes, ma'am. Maybe you can speak up a teaspoon. That would be helpful. Mm, what about now? Is that a little better? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for allowing me to speak. I um, this section. I don't know. I, I got some notes. Uh, so right at the beginning, um, it says, uh, by that time, we had been told not to attend the trial because of the danger it posed to our lives. Neither Sherry nor I could do that, however, since we felt it important to show Jeff that we had not abandoned him. So first, I wondered who told them, you know, that attending the trial would be dangerous for their lives. Um, I also wondered... Would it be more dangerous than having Jeffrey Dahmer as a son? And, you know, and then I thought to myself, no matter what another white person does, white people maintain codification. Um, these, he, he talked about his mom going to the hospital when he was a little boy and how he got the stutter. And he used the word dark several times in that um, paragraph. So, I noticed that these hospital visits seem to be pivotal points in the lives of uh, Lionel Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer, and Ted Kaczynski. I noted the use of the term dark. And I also at the end, he said, um, but eventually my dear father's, oh, give me a second. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, sorry. Give me. One more second. Okay. He said, but eventually, my dear... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You're good. Okay. Um, He said, but eventually, my dear father's dedication in special classes largely ended the stuttering. I thought it was interesting that he called his father my dear father because he said earlier in the book that the way he treated Jeff is the same way his father treated him. So that terminology confused me. Um, Let me see. That part about Junie, I thought that was super interesting so it's like he, Jeffrey was not the first one. Like he got this from his father wanting to have another person who was a zombie that he could control. So I thought that was super interesting. Um, he said, more often than anything during my childhood, I was plagued by the certainty that I was both physically weak and intellectually inferior. That kind of made me think about uh, Eric Harris and uh, Dylan Klebold. Eric Harris was a very small person, um, and I know Sue Klebold kept talking about how smart Dylan was, but he didn't seem to be doing very well in school. Um, the the bomb that he made, yeah, I don't understand why he just called it a sound bomb, because he put those BBs in there, and usually when you put, like, hard objects inside of an explosive, it's to harm people. Um, when it hits them. So calling it a percussion bomb, I think, is minimizing what he really did. It was another part. It said, and so it became necessary to find another place for my mother to live. We found one a few weeks later, and on March 29th, Sherry and I went to gather my mother's things from the apartment she had lived in since Jeff's arrest. It was a sad gathering. As I wrote later to Jeff, 
then adopted my usual tone of fatherly guidance. I told him to take his medication dutifully, to use his mind to a sense of satisfaction, and to stay well mentally. I don't know how he could stay well. He's not well. With God's intervention and control. You are loved greatly by me, and he put an exclamation mark. Um, I wrote at the end of that letter, allowing the single explanation point to carry the weight of my emotions. This person has said on several occasions that he doesn't have a lot of emotions. Also, did Lionel just put his mother in a nursing home and not really say that? <laughs> that's the reason I read that part. I think that's what he did, but he didn't say, hey, I put my mom in a nursing home. Um, oh, the prison. Um, it says a few weeks after Jeff had been transferred, eh, I don't want to read the whole thing, but they found a razor blade in Jeffrey Dahmer's cell, and then they put him on suicide watch. Like, they didn't punish him for having something that could be used as a weapon. And Jeffrey Dahmer does have a history of cutting people up, so I think that's just super interesting to think, oh, he's going to harm himself with his razor blade. Um, he said, racist sent my son their heartfelt congratulations for having murdered so many young black men. One wanted to know whether he picked up his ideas while stationed in Germany. So I thought that was super interesting. And I remember another participant um, questioned whether Jeffrey Dahmer killed anyone while he was in Germany. Um, so that made me think of that. Um, it was those letters, like, all of the letters that people were writing to Jeffrey Dahmer while he was in prison, and then, you know, they gave the letters to the father. Um, you know, they wrote those letters in such, like, a congratulatory, amiable manner, and it just really made me think about the way white people almost worship death-making. It's such a fundamental part of racist, white supremacist culture, um, let me see. He talked also about, um, like, he's writing these letters or whatever. He said, now when I look at these passages from my correspondence with Jeff, I see them as a perfect representative of that part of my fatherhood, which had always remained intransigently evasive and uninsightful. And its concentration on the trivial minutiae of life and its emphasis and lack of meaning, and the way it substitutes details for substance, information for feeling. It exhibited my continued determination to evade the disturbing core of both myself and my son, along with the line that indisputably connected us. Um, so I, I just thought that was a really important part and. Uh, oh, the hypnosis, I'm not, I, I noticed, I, I watched something else, it was, I'm not sure, well, it was kind of related because of the hypnosis. There was this thing called the Watchmen, and uh, in this, the racist white supremacists in here, they were using hypnosis on the black people, and they were trying, succeeding in hypnotizing uh, people classified as black to fight with one another and not white people and that's all i have for now thank you right on we will promptly get to the second audio segment much obliged lauren fresh princess we'll get to our other folks who wrote in and such uh audio segment 
two, conclusion, man, oh man, and treat at the end. Catherine Massey Book Club, A Father's Story, Lionel Dahmer, Context of White Supremacy. Toward the middle of August, Sherry and I visited Jeff at Columbia Correctional Institution. By that time, he had been on Prozac for several months, and his mood had brightened considerably. Although not yet in general population, he was no longer entirely segregated. He was far more animated in his conversation, far more engaged. He talked about the possibility of getting a job in the prison. He mentioned several potential jobs and seemed to be most interested in those related to the prison's printing shop. An anonymous benefactor had contributed $130 to his prison account, and with that money, he had ordered 13 books, all of them having to do with the creation-evolution controversy. It amazed him that a scientific theory that had been received as an unarguable scientific fact during all the years of his education might rest on questionable assumptions. It seemed to delight him that so thoroughly accepted an idea could be questioned that nothing stood on truly solid ground. Sherry and I left the prison later that morning, and a few hours after that, in order to relax, we stopped at the Wisconsin State Fair in West Allis. It was a bright, sunny day, and as Sherry and I walked the fairgrounds, we could sense that there might be a light at the end of the tunnel when it came to Jeff. He had looked to be in quite good shape, both physically and mentally. We could at least hope that he was learning to adjust to prison life and that he was going to make the best of it. Given all that, it seemed possible that, for a precious few minutes, we might be able to enjoy the casual atmosphere of the fair. At one point, we stopped to have a late lunch. I stepped up to a booth and bought two Italian sausages and lemonade. There was a dense crowd, and we both found something comforting in the openness of the situation. Its sea of faces, ours like all the others, pleasant, contented, thoroughly anonymous. Then, suddenly, as we were making our way toward a table where we could sit together and have our lunch, a blonde woman reached out and grabbed Sherry's arm. Come sit with us, she said. I know who you are. In September, I received an official list of all the things that had been collected from Jeff's apartment. Sixty-nine separate sheets, all of them headed police inventory, listed the residue of my son's life. There were the videos he had watched, some innocuous like Blade Runner and Star Wars, some darkly suggestive like Hellbound and Exorcist Three, and still others that were grimly pornographic. Hard Men Two, Rock Hard, and Tropical Heat Wave. There were the things he had read, all of it pornographic, with the exception of four books on the care of fish. There was the music he had listened to, Motley Crue and Def Leppard's Hysteria. There were the food supplements that had strengthened him, Yerba Prima, Vita, and Anabolic Fuel, incongruously assembled with the junk food of a careless life, Doritos and Ruffles chips. There were the things that had helped destroy him, bottles of rum and cans of beer, an alcoholic's indiscriminate collection, Budweiser, Pap's Blue Ribbon, Miller High Life. There were chemicals he had used to clean, Clorox bleach, Woolworth pine cleaner, and Lysol. There were chemicals he had used to preserve, formaldehyde and acetone, 
and there were chemicals he had used to kill. Chloroform and ether and halcyon, as well as to break down the flesh of the newly dead. Soilix, six boxes. There were even chemicals he had used to conceal the things that he had done. Odorsorb, also six boxes. There were utterly neutral things, suddenly made sinister. Three black-handled forks, two butcher knives, a pair of chemical-resistant gloves, a handsaw with five detachable blades, and a three-quarter-inch drill. There were ordinary things, suddenly made unspeakably perverse. Barbecue sauce and meat tenderizer. There were the few things he used to beautify his life an ornamental driftwood, artificial peacock feathers, and a lighted fish tank. There were symbols of the modern world, a computer and a software manual, a guide to learning DOS, a blue-and-white laptop box cover. And there were artifacts from an ancient world, two plastic griffins and an incense burner. There were the things he had used to sustain life, a box of fish food, and the things he had used to take it, a pair of nickel-plated handcuffs. There were, at last, the inescapable remnants of the awesome damage he had done, each item grimly listed in the same terrible inventory. One pillow, white with light blue flowers with blood stain. One pillow, black case and pillow with blood stain. One bed sheet, black fitted with blood stain. One white mattress cover, white with blood stain. One pillowcase, black with blood stain. One mattress with blue flowered pattern with blood stains both sides. On Saturday, November 28th, I went to gather up those things which the police had seized from Jeff's apartment after his arrest and which were in no way related to his crimes. There was quite a lot, so I took a van down to the safety building adjacent to the Milwaukee Police Headquarters. The police garage was in the basement, and so I drove the van under the building, then backed it up to the warehouse, where Jeff's things had been kept since July of the previous year. Escorted by three detectives, I walked into a large concrete storage area. Other men were already assembling Jeff's things at the front of the room. There was more of it than I had expected, and so for a long time I watched as they lugged out the larger items. His television, two black lamps, various tables and chairs, the props used in a life that had been lived on the margin. Never had Jeff seemed more lost than in the things he had possessed. In December 1992, another innocent victim, my mother, died in the final residence where I had placed her several months before. She died in her sleep at peace. Sherry and I drove up to Milwaukee to make arrangements for her funeral. Two days later, my mother was buried. After the funeral, we drove up to see Jeff. We had called before leaving our house, and so he already knew of his grandmother's death when we arrived. The night of her death, he told me, he had experienced a sudden rush of nervousness and dread. I don't know, he said. I just felt wired that night, like my nervous system was going to explode. Several hours later, he added, that feeling was gone. On the way back from Columbia Correctional Institution, with Sherry riding beside me, I felt an odd sense of finality. One of the great roles of my life, that of a dutiful son, was over. 
I was now a father only. Once at home, I went to the trunk of the car, opened it, and picked up the box I'd brought back from Columbia. I took it into the basement, drew back the lids, and glanced inside. There was nothing of note, nothing of any particular significance, only the usual items that strangers sent to Jeff for reasons I will never know. Canned or packaged food, clothes and vitamins, pencils, pens, and writing pads, crucifixes and rosaries of all kinds, audio tapes, stuffed animals, stamped envelopes, some already self-addressed, others not, books, both hardback and paperback, but usually religious, news magazines, nature magazines, religious magazines, a smattering of Reader's Digest, and, of course, hundreds of letters, scores bearing foreign stamps. For a moment, all these things gathered together in that small brown box seemed terribly sad to me, a pathetic and hopeless reaching out in impossible gestures of sympathy and consolation. I had brought all of it back home, and as I began to take these things one by one from the box, I remembered all the other times that I had gone to wherever it was Jeff had lived, gathered up his things, and brought them home. When he had failed at college, I had brought back his things. When he had been sentenced for child molestation, I had returned to my mother's house and brought back his things. And at the end of his trial, long after he had been locked away, I had driven into the basement of the safety building and, once again, gathered up his things. Now, each month, I returned to him, talked a while, then gathered up his things and brought them home. Nothing, it seemed to me, could better serve as the metaphor for those who live their lives under the shadow of a troubled child than this exhausted but unending sense of cleaning up. But what could I have cleaned up of my own? What could I have gathered up and put away so that Jeff might not have gotten to it? In the early years, we pick up everything that would be dangerous for our children to have— we pick up marbles and staples and thumbtacks so that they cannot find and swallow them. We put away knives and guns and poisons and even plastic bags. We plug up electrical outlets and place small pads over all the sharp edges we can find. But there are other things we cannot protect our children from, and I have come to believe that among these many other things, a few have the potential for profound and awesome evil. As a scientist, I further wonder if this potential for great evil also resides deep in the blood that some of us fathers and mothers may pass on to our children at birth. In addition to whatever my genetic contribution was, the violence and crime in our society and in the media had a great influence on my son, as well as on the countless other children who are exposed to the glorification of violence that they watch in movies and television. I also believe that a wise, skilled, and loving psychologist might have guided Jeff in his early formative years into a different ending. If we are fortunate, we pass our gifts, not only spiritual, intellectual, and physical gifts, but our gift for love and sympathy, our gift for enduring misfortune, for sustaining life, and for honoring it. But some of us are doomed to pass a curse instead. When I think back on the interview I gave to Inside Edition so many months ago, I hear the interviewer's question once again, Do you forgive your son? Yes, I do. But should he forgive me? 
I am not so sure because I have come to believe that some of the compulsions that overwhelmed my son may have had their origins in me, and the things I might have done or not done with him. Perhaps it was only by the grace of God that I or any escaped his fate, or because of either genetic endowment or the psychological legacy of my parents and their parents. The odd fantasies of my youth, the violent impulses that arose in me from my early feelings of powerlessness and inferiority, that perhaps limited my expressing my love to Jeff, all these, I believe, may have come to Jeff through me. For me, the terrible implications of these many possibilities are very deep and painful. And yet, after all that has happened to my son, after all the sorrow and devastation that his life has brought to others, I cannot avoid considering even the darkest of them. And yet, in the absence of a professional study, I cannot be sure. Although as a scientist I must accept genetics as a powerful contributing force in the formation of a human being, I also understand that only half of my son's genetic makeup came from me and even more that genetic mutations can occur at any time in any living organism, their influence on later development entirely unpredictable. I don't know, and will never know, how much drugs contributed to Jeff's crimes, either his own alcoholism or the medications my wife took while he still lay in her womb. Nor can I gauge with any reliability the effect of our disordered family relations during the time that he was growing up, or guess at how therapeutic intervention might have helped him at any given point in his journey toward destruction. Could Jeff have been influenced by the level of violence in our society that surrounded him, or by the constant violence that his peer group watched in movies and television? Now, many months after Jeff's trial and our ordeal, I remain a man in constant rumination, often tortured in soul by the deeds of my offspring. I find that I remain in the grip of a great unknowing, both in terms of Jeff himself and my effect upon him as a father, by omissions and commissions. Fatherhood remains, at last, a grave enigma, and when I contemplate that my other son may one day be a father, I can only say to him, as I must to every father after me, take care, take care, take care. Afterward Shortly after I arrived at work on November 28, 1994, Sherry called to tell me Jeff was dead. A flush swept over me. It was somewhat like the shock I felt sitting at the same desk in July 1991 when she told me that Jeff had been arrested for murder. Yet it was also a different feeling. I felt as if a part of my innermost being had left me. I was in utter despair. In a sense, Jeff's murder was the culmination of the swirl of events and emotions which have kept us off balance, wondering what's next. Many things are still happening, however, which continue to cause enormous stress in our lives. My thoughts focus on my loving wife, Sherry, who has suffered so much from these pressures. It seems unfair that one who has done so much to promote the strong and caring three-way bond between Sherry, Jeff, and me should have to be the one to suffer the most. 
Recently, two weeks before her eye surgery, Sherry was forced to undergo a long, grueling court-ordered video deposition in connection with a lawsuit claiming that we knew or should have known that defendant Jeffrey Dahmer was deviant and destined to cause severe injury and death to others. We were at a loss to explain why Sherry was even named as a defendant, since she had met Jeff briefly only once in the spring of 1978. Although several attorneys told Sherry they felt she would be quickly dismissed, this lawsuit continued for two years, causing Sherry to suffer loss of her work and a worsening of her health problems. Numerous medical and psychological treatments were necessary, and she felt defamed. She had to retain an attorney. Sherry puts up a gallant front, but I see her fragility in private. I have wondered to myself, how ironic. Jeff's biological mother wasn't even deposed. We are left with a puzzled and hurt sense of this judicial process, knowing only one thing for certain. Sherry didn't deserve to suffer like this. In contrast, our experiences with people like Teresa Smith have softened the hurting. After our memorial service for Jeff, she said, I forgive Jeff, Lionel, referring to her dear brother Eddie. I felt surprise and relief as we hugged for what seemed a long time. Sherry smiled knowingly as she squeezed my hand and kissed me. Now that Jeff was dead, it was time to focus my life on the people precious to me, Sherry first and foremost, and my other son Dave. These people and many others have gone out of their way to console us and share our grief. People who had shared letters with Jeff have been contacting us. They said they were shocked and saddened to lose a real friend. There was something naive and different about Jeff, many said. Two people from Adelaide, Australia wrote, The media commented that only Jeffrey's family would shed tears. They were wrong. A close friend of mine, a fine parent, gave his deep-felt condolences and said that a father's story caused him to deeply reflect on his own parenting and he was going to urge his grown sons to study the book. Comments such as these indicate to me the book is accomplishing one of its intended goals, to help people. An interviewer asked me about my thoughts on my role in genetic inheritance, and I realized that there were also some things not made clear in my book. I rolled many thoughts through my mind as I tried to fathom Jeff, genetic influence, environmental influence, etc. My psychologist had warned me, Lionel, some of the possible influences you have come up with may not be involved at all. And furthermore, I would be disappointed in your intellect level if you suggested that any one of them is solely responsible for Jeff's actions. The point is that I was merely brainstorming in lieu of a scientific study of both genetic and other sources leading to Jeff. In fact, there is no antisocial history in my lineage. Some may question why I grieve for someone who did what he did. Beyond the usual true responses that he was my son, and I have all the loving memories of his very young days, I particularly grieve because for almost a year before he was murdered, he had become someone who could have nothing in common with the person who committed the previous terrible acts. His humanity was restoring itself. Sherry and I noticed a significant reaching out. 
During a visit graciously approved by Warden Endicott, Jeff apologized personally to Teresa for the hurt caused her and attempted to answer her need to know that Eddie had not suffered. The Madison, Wisconsin Church of Christ minister Roy Ratcliffe, who baptized Jeff into Christ and studied with him, responded to someone's statement that the redemption of Jeff stretched his concept of God's grace. Mr. Ratcliffe replied that this was really just a simple application of God's grace. He went on to say that the negative part of Jeff's life illustrates how low one can sink when God is not a part of your life and, on the positive side, how high one can rise when God is allowed to take charge of your life. All this was Mr. Ratcliffe's way of gently saying that if Jeff's being saved stretches your concept of grace, then that concept is smaller than the one described in the inspired scriptures. A letter written to Mary Mott of Arlington, Virginia, in April 1994, characterizes Jeff's sincerity. Dear Mrs. Mott, Hello, thank you so much for sending me the World Bible Correspondence Course. Also, thank you for the Bible. I want to accept the Lord's salvation, but I don't know if the prison will allow me to be baptized. Mr. Burkham, our chaplain, is not sure if he can find someone that would be able to baptize me in prison. I'm very concerned about this. I hope that this letter finds you well and in good health. God bless you. Sincerely, Jeff Dahmer. Thus began a series of written contacts between Jeff and several wonderful people besides Mary, ending in the event that Jeff referred to in his letter to Mr. Garland Elkins of Memphis, Tennessee, part of which said, Yes, I was baptized into Christ on May 10th around 2 p.m. It was kind of a strange day to be baptized because that was the day of the solar eclipse. Around 12 noon, most of the sun was covered, but by 2 p.m. the sun was bright and shining again. I would like to share the full plan of salvation with other inmates. In retrospect, it seems that a long line of orchestrated events brought Jeff to this point. In 1989, I myself returned fully to God, being influenced by the urging of my son Dave and profoundly affected by a seminar presented by a scientist from Montgomery, Alabama, Dr. Bert Thompson. Then, in quick succession, I made contact with a network of scientists from California to Russia. I shared tapes and articles with Jeff up to the time of his arrest in July 1991, and then afterward until his death. Jeff was in the firm grip of his obsessive-compulsive urges. However, nothing got through to him until his final arrest, he said. After his arrest, Jeff said it was like a veil being lifted from him, and he seemed to be able to discuss his ultimate fate and even some of the discoveries that I had made and wanted to share with him. At one visit, Jeff confessed to me that previously he did not really feel accountable for his actions, partly because of the things taught in high school and afterward, everywhere he turned. As Jeff explained to Stone Phillips in the NBC Dateline interview, when asked his thoughts when he was committing such crimes, I felt that I didn't have to be accountable to anyone. Since man came from slime, he was accountable to no one. While it is, of course, not true that every criminal or even the ordinary law-abiding person does wrong because of the hypothesis that we all came from slime, Jeff and I concurred that teaching of only this belief as fact 
has stifled free thinking and affected millions of lives. Jeff had read 13 books on the origins question, and I truly looked forward to discussions with him. We talked about the latest developments. I told him about the work of a Russian microbiologist friend who was researching the genetic changes in animals. Jeff sounded intrigued when I told him that this work may show why we see changes, but only within apparently prescribed limits. Then Jeff would respond by saying that even the famous evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould of Harvard admits that incontrovertible intermediate forms are non-existent and that there are seemingly discrete boundaries to gross change. Next, either Jeff or I would say something like, maybe the DNA informational programming on a fantastically micro-scale is the evidence, right under our noses, showing design by intelligent life out there that Carl Sagan is looking for with his radio telescopes. It felt stimulating, and I missed Jeff's inquiring mind. Some of my friends, relatives, and even family members have accepted the prevailing philosophic belief without question concerning our origins. Jeff and I have been fortunate to hear the other side of the story and to have shared for a brief time the scientific evidences of intelligent design. Jeff especially understood that what we believe about our origins determines what we believe about our destiny. Although we also talked nonstop about personal things, happy and sad, I mentioned these conversations above to characterize the intensely connected feelings I developed in talking about these subjects with Jeff. He seemed to feel the same way. If only we had somehow made contact with a Burt Thompson 15 to 25 years earlier. And so this shared interest, along with the evidence that the change in him seemed sincere, makes it very hard for me emotionally. I find myself sometimes slipping into a morose state longing for him. I try to divert my mind by throwing myself into my work. Putting my afterthoughts to print is also cathartic, much in the same way it was when I had my thoughts put in book form for A Father's Story. It is extremely difficult for me, however, as I frequently visualize his badly battered head and body on the cart at the Veterans Memorial Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. My pain must be like that of family members of Jeff's victims. In her characteristically reassuring manner, Sherry tells me that Jeff is at peace now. Part of me agrees, but another part of me wants Jeff to have lived to fulfill his stated desire to share his knowledge and hopes with others. Because Jeff found new direction and goals, he lost his earlier belief that he should be dead for what he did. He did not have a death wish with no gumption to kill himself, as some were quoted to say. These people were simply out of touch with Jeff for over two years. Brian Masters, a well-known British author and thoughtful friend to Sherry and me, has been the singular writer having a deep insight into Jeff and the surrounding events. In a recent feature article entitled, But He Did Not Deserve to Die, Brian, like me, asks the question, Why wouldn't it be possible for Jeff to have contributed something worthwhile? Brian cited the notorious Nathan Leopold, who helped discover a cure for malaria and wrote a math textbook while in prison. Someone said that Jeff was like a comet which comes around only once in a long time. While it sounds like a good analogy, this misses one of the main points inherent in a father's story, 
That is, what Jeff did was the culmination of a long series of progressive involvements with pornography and other obsessions. We are all part of a continuum, and, since the consequence of lust is more lust, it is important that parents be especially watchful for developing patterns of obsession in their children and in themselves. Whether the lust manifests itself as sex, power, control, dominance, money, food, or something else, it could, in the extreme, lead to another Jeff, or in the less extreme, to a person anywhere along the continuum of human wrongdoing. In a very human sense, many people may be reluctant to deal with that. They want to say that a little bit of lust is no problem, a little sin is no problem, and it's easier to dismiss Jeff that way as a rarity having no relevance to them or their children, much like a comet that makes a rare appearance. Some of the reactions to Jeff's murder were predictable. Congressman Trafficant of Ohio ranted to his colleagues something to the effect that we should let all of them just kill each other. A Chicago WLSAM radio talk show host proclaimed the day as a celebration and said, I'm sure if there is a hell, there's a place of special honor there for Jeffrey Dahmer now. A family member of one of Jeff's victims appeared on a national TV talk show proposing that Jeff's murderer receive a medal. Reports out of Milwaukee had some people considering Jeff's murder to be poetic justice. Rather than Jeff's murder being any kind of justice, it is just another example of the failure of the criminal justice system. The only message that one gets from the murder of Jeff is, Watch your back in prison. There is no message of right or wrong. There is only a message of more murder, more hate, more craziness, and more sin. Rather than glorying in Jeff's murder, I believe anyone who is really thinking should feel humiliated that this can be allowed to happen in a super-maximum security prison like Wisconsin's Columbia Correctional Institution, CCI. During one of my visits, shortly after Jeff had been attacked with a razor in July 1994, the prison chaplain was waiting for me in the lobby. After he talked to me, I felt reassured that Jeff would be secure. The attack was vicious, as described to me by Jeff, but minimized in the press. The chaplain, I learned after Jeff's death, had also reassured Jeff's minister, Roy Ratcliffe. Whether the chaplain was acting in an official contact capacity or not, we do not know, but Mr. Ratcliffe and I agreed that we were lulled into a secure feeling, and we felt betrayed upon hearing of Jeff's murder. I also felt guilty. I might, I thought, have probed the warden or others regarding security after that first unsuccessful attempt on Jeff's life. I found out recently that, amazingly, Jeff was allowed to be without supervision for some twenty to forty minutes with a man who had previously attacked other people at another Wisconsin prison using makeshift weapons. This man also repeatedly threatened to kill white people. One report in July 1994 described this person together with a threat on Jeff specifically, but CCI personnel concluded that it was not substantive. After surprising Jeff from behind and bludgeoning him to death with a twenty by two and a half inch metal bar, this person crossed the gym area in full view of the security cameras and made good on his past repeated threats by murdering Jesse Anderson as well. 
The murder investigation is supposedly complete, and only one person has been charged. As of this writing, the prison system has given no information regarding the following. 1. An inmate wrote to Jeff's attorney, Steve Eisenberg, saying there was complicity and there was a hit squad. 2. Jeff and Jesse were dropped off for work detail at 8 a.m. November 28, 1994, and the person charged with their murders at 8.05 a.m. Then, no one can account for anybody from 8.05 to 8.40 a.m., including the whereabouts of the guards and the recreation director. What about sounds and screams which are sure to have occurred? 3. Cameras are everywhere, always rolling, and monitored in a central control room. What happened? 4. Why would a person with a history of making racial threats and attacking people with makeshift weapons in prison even be allowed in the vicinity of a metal bar, or the broom he was carrying, or be allowed to be anywhere near people he specifically threatened? We will have to wait to see what comes out of the panel formed by the director of Wisconsin's prisons after they review CCI policies and procedures. Even though Jeff is dead, everything continues to play in my mind. Problems still have to be dealt with, such as the dogged court efforts by a Milwaukee attorney to auction off the instruments of crime. Fortunately, several family members of Jeff's victims realized the ramifications and have stood firm with us to voice opposition. A European friend told me that not only would such an auction not be allowed in his country, but it would be considered to be crossing over the line of acceptable behavior. Two other lawsuits against me have been in progress for over a year, much like the one described earlier with Sherry. I have become very disillusioned and hurt by the process. And so as these cases and other things drag on, costing emotions and money, I wonder why they weren't summarily dismissed. It seems strange to me that the probation department case was dismissed when their required but non-existent visitations might have caused Jeff to be discovered much sooner. Other things seem unfair or regrettable. I still remember how Jeff agonized to me about giving in when a Milwaukee psychologist appeared early one morning at CCI and pressed Jeff to sign over his rights to the many hours of interviews. The psychologist had told him, Jeff said, that the material would be used only for teaching purposes, classes. When the material showed up in a commercial book, Jeff felt betrayed and manipulated, as I did when the detailed family history, which I supplied in confidence to help Jeff in the insanity defense, showed up in the same book. I guess I felt as if I betrayed Jeff as well when he asked me one day, Dad, how come your book didn't have more of the happy things we did together? He was referring to the two years of 4-H we shared raising lambs, building fences for them, planting gardens, hiking in metropolitan parks, sharing science fair plans, etc. My weak reply was that the book was intended to show a limited focus, a spiraling downward. Jeff said, It sure did that all right. I felt that I unknowingly betrayed Jeff when I urged that an insanity plea would be his best bet at getting effective psychological treatment. Everyone connected with Jeff's defense concurred. After the trial, however, I learned from reliable sources 
that mental treatment at the state psychiatric institutions was essentially custodial and the physical conditions abysmal, perhaps a combination for totally sending Jeff off the deep end. I thought, shouldn't this have been known? I asked rhetorically, what was the Milwaukee trial really for? If I had known then what I learned after the trial, I would have urged for no trial on the basis of insanity. Brian Masters gives an excellent assessment of the true nature of the trial, the jury, and all the machinations which took place. But now, in light of what happened at CCI, a place designed to prevent just exactly what occurred, it seems to me that there was no appropriate place for Jeff to go, except where he is now, with his Lord. Lionel H. Dahmer, March 1st, 1995 The End This has been A Father's Story by Lionel Dahmer Narrated by Scott R. Pollock Copyright 1994 by Lionel Dahmer This audiobook was produced in 2022 by Tower Audiobooks in cooperation with Echo Point Books and Media, LLC. A bunch of the fellows eat meat. If Jeff was a cat and men were the rats, what do you think will come of that? I don't like the look of it. Jeffrey loved eating men from gay bars, and he lived in happiness too. Like the Hit it and quit it. Catherine Massey Book Club all done. Lionel Dahmer's A Father's Story. Make sure I include. I do think it's important. You talk about omissions and commissions. He's writing this book. Jeffrey Dahmer is convicted in 1992. He has to take all that time last week. Now Jeff was not a racist. Then he comes around this week. Talks about <clears throat> the black male who killed Jeff didn't like white people racial <clears throat> 1992 did something significant happen in 1990 oh the LA riots now I know LA is not Wisconsin but I mean wow short of OJ Simpson the two are related man how do you write something that deals with racism that's happening in 1992 no Rodney King riots okay anywho the number 605-313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate number again 605 313 5164 
the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Final thoughts to share. Uh, let's see, email number two. Greetings, Gus. The text also got me interested in black serial killers, in quotes, and if there have been any studies of them. I came across two references. African-American serial killers overrepresented yet underacknowledged. The Howard Journal of Criminal Justice. Alan L. Branson, the article raised the question as to why, even though there have been 90 black American so-called serial killers since 1945 until 2000s, media portrayals of them have been exceedingly rare. Even though blacks are continually portrayed in the media committing other crimes, media portrayals of serial killers is almost universally white males. Two, a study of African-American serial killers, Journal of Ethnicity and Criminal Justice, October 2014 by David Lester uh, uh, David Lester and John White this article compared 57 African American serial killers with 205 white serial killers since 1900 it looked at 83 variables the conclusion was that African American serial killers comparatively killed fewer victims committed fewer sexually deviant and violent acts such as less torturing or bizarre sexual acts for example necrophilia and seemed more normal in childhood whatever that means Chapter 9. As a boy, I felt oddly helpless beyond the help of any one disassociated man, limited in my ability to respond with feeling to another's. Might have generated acts I was still afraid to face. Borderline personality disorder, DSM-5. Uh, signs and symptoms, fear of abandonment, dangerous impulsive behaviors, dissociation, feeling empty or lost. I would have loved to have had Dr. Welsing reading along with this book. Chapter 10. She might have read this book. It was published so long ago, like, she easily could have read it when it came out in 95, right? Uh, chapter 10. Told to told not to attend trial, danger to our lives. I'm suspicious whether they were truly in danger. That The whole part where they talked about all that, it reminded me so much of Joey 22. Uh, I spoke with Dr. Chalapa, non-white uh, psychiatrist uh, who went to talk to Joseph G. Christopher uh, after the Buffalo killings of those black males and he said it was scary. He talked about how they had to use the uh, tunnel to go underneath the courtroom. They had police everywhere and it was just really stressful. In fact, it reminded me of earlier this year when I was in Buffalo for Peyton Gendron's sentencing and they had the outburst in the courtroom and all of that and it was really you had to go through metal detectors repeatedly and they had all of these officers all of I mean it was a really thick not just it was like a SWAT presence it wasn't just like security officers and we'll tase you watch it but it was like nah you could uh, die like really scared. so that's what it reminded me of I, I doubt that very seriously because he talked about how well protected Jeff was uh, which was the case for Peyton Gendron like when that outburst happened there were so many officers armed officers to guard Peyton Gendron and they same thing that they described here they shepherded him right on away I don't know if they took him to the library at the Erie County Courthouse but they shepherded him right on to safety shut everything down restarted brought Gendron safely back to the courtroom and kept him guarded and shielded the whole time so yeah uh, number two lack of control over my many 
over many things in my life, I never dreamed of murder, awake with a vague feeling that something bad had happened, horrifying sensation of something remembered. This is interesting. Could it be that he has blocked out bad things, which he did, or is just not being honest? Three, Jeff's murder of Steve Tuomi, Stephen Hicks. Tuomi was one of the few white people he killed. Hicks was Dahmer's first victim. Dahmer states he did kill again until it didn't until 1987. Dahmer was age 18. He was picked up hitchhiking, something I stupidly engaged in as a teen, a young adult around this time period. It was very common. Taken back to the family home, killed, dismembered, and buried in the backyard. Hicks' mother sued the Dahmers for $50 million. Should have known he was deviant. They were found guilty not clear if any money was awarded wow that's wow uh i was thinking that isn't that so columbine and sue klebold and particularly in this one like you'd already seen this guy get arrested for child molestation and all i mean you've been seeing all of this behavior for a while going down in the basement what you got in this box jeff what you got this gun for jeff come on number four need for control permanence in uh introversion traits I shared with Jeff's little girl named Junie I was a young boy 12 or 13 uh, stared at the candle she was hypnotized I can no longer see it as harmless childhood prank I like controlling her I was physically weak and intellectually inferior I wondered if he had any thoughts of molesting her this is a chilling story by any measure I agree by making percussion bombs boy <clears throat> riding a bike dropped it from a third floor stairwell in school uh, second text where white youths make bombs. This seems to be a common aspect of white culture. The person I know who survived Columbine was also a bomb maker. And Lionel calls it an edgy prank. See? The Psychopathic Racial Personality and Other Essays by Dr. Bobby E. Wright. Number six. How close <clears throat> was I to going down the path Jeff went? Oh no, it backed up. What is that? Get back over there. There we go. How close was I to going down the path Jeff went? Wired the couch to give cousins an electric shock. Merely a practical joke. Lana was able to channel his sadistic personality into becoming a mediocre chemist. Hey, we mean, we, hey, hey, hey. What what have you published? Uh, what what chemistry reports have you published, Bob? Talking meek, calling that white man mediocre. He did say he was a plugger. Uh, I'm sure he learned a lot about bomb making. Just never acted upon it as an adult. Mediocre suspected racist is a common theme in both the last two texts. Dang, he says Sue mediocre too. Dang, she graduated from Ohio State. Dang. In spite of their mediocrity, lame Lionel and sorry Sue go on to college, buy nice homes, and get to live in bucolic, racially restricted regions, while black males with PhDs struggle. Yeah, well, yeah. What can you do? Chapter 11. Tracy Edwards didn't even have a PhD, so, you know. Uh, chapter 11. Mrs. Hughes, uh, Tony Hughes' mother, Reverend Jean Champion, Rita Isabel, sister of Errol Lindsay. Uh, Tony, age 31, gay black male, Dahmer's 12th victim, Errol, age 19, Dahmer's 11th victim, reportedly heterosexual. He has a daughter who was born six months after his murder. Jesus Christ. Ooh. 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 Wow. Mm, 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 mm. All righty. Number two, Jeff, male, 
religious, teenagers, sexual, love letters, autograph seekers. Jo- oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can we move on from this one and, and miss the jokes? Let's see. We'll get two. I'll give you two of the best Jeff Dahmer jokes we can nab. Let's see. Here's one. Jeffrey Dahmer, a man who touched the hearts and souls of many children, died today after a lengthy illness. In his life, he was known to cut up many with his sharp wit. Never known to discriminate due to the color of skin, Dahmer really sunk his teeth into many minority causes. <laughs> Let's get one more. Let's get one more. What do you find in Jeffrey Dahmer's freezer? Ben and Jerry. <laughs> chocolate <laughs> okay uh, let's see number two finish uh, the infatuation with these killers is so disturbing presumably these are overwhelmingly white people who are classified or people who are classified as white white culture white culture number three uh, collected videos Blade Runner pornographic supplements Yerba Prima Blade Runner is adapted from a book by Philip K. Dick oh god oh uh, who also wrote Gus's not in the top 10 book, The Man in the High Castle from the Cows Book Club. E. Yerba supplement slowing digestion increases fullness, regulates blood sugar. Was he using this as a weight loss drug? I don't know. Hmm. For some, and even Doritos too, right? Some of us are doomed to pass a curse. Some of the compulsions had origins in me, my feelings of powerlessness, powerlessness. Odd fantasies, violent impulses, limited expressions of love. Very different from Sue Klebold's text. At least he seems to accept some responsibility. Yeah, I didn't get that from Sue at all. We have read a number of books about serial killers. I'm certainly much more informed about them now, and I think the information is constructive. Yeah, I'm not even into serial killers, and man, we've read quite a bit. Ronald J. Dominic, right? All right. Uh, Let's nab some of the callers, and then we'll get to the rest of the emails star six one if you have final thoughts Lionel Dahmer's a father's story folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, let's see non Clemson dad mommy C woke baby should be with us can I be heard ma'am yes ma'am excellent excellent um, been trying to call in for a number of weeks but had to get the baby down so Able to call in on the final night. Um, Halloween is coming up, and that's the favorite holiday for white people. Early on, Jeffrey and his friend Lee dressed up as blue-eyed devils. Now people dress up as Dahmer, and I expect the same thing this Halloween. And people also dressed up as Eric and Dylan. Uh, Dahmer watched the Exorcist movie religiously every day. Death is the religion of white supremacy. And there's a new Exorcist movie premiering, I guess, sometime this month, or maybe it's already out. Um, Dylan and Jeffrey were extremely orderly and meticulous. Sue Klebold and Alain mentioned that about their sons. Um, Jeffrey and a lot of white people, they enjoy collecting things, and in this case, White people enjoy collecting people and artifacts in order to hold power over people, places, and the entire world. Um, one thing that I've noticed and I've been wanting to call in was um, 
first and foremost, between the two families, you know, Sue Klebold had two sons, and then Lionel had two sons. That's a similarity. But the question becomes, whatever happened to David Dahmer? Well, fine, I, I did a little bit of research, and David changed his name. No one knows what his new name is at the moment. But he went on to live a very successful life, has a career, has, you know, at least two children, um, and is very successful in life. Um, I suspect that many of the people connected to the Klebolds and the Dahmers um, the family members, they likely tried to dissociate themselves or distance themselves from being associated with um, what their family members, their cousins, their brother or sons or whatever, try to do. But unlike Lionel and Sherry, who wanted to kind of um, keep a lower profile, and Tom as well, Sue Klebold, I suspect, even though she divorced Tom, did not change her name because she was tied to um, Dylan's infamy and keeping up her brand and how she could make money with that. Another thing, white people keep lawyers on retainer. They don't care if their family member is guilty. They are innocent until proven guilty, and they are protected by the wall. The law. This week, Lionel, he mentioned something about um, – changing Jeffrey's legal representation. And earlier on, Grandma Dahmer, she paid, um, I think it was maybe $200 to bail Jeffrey out, just as Dylan Klebold's grandma from the grave with the life insurance policy bailed out Dylan and the Klebolds from the lawsuit. Um, I, I will end my share by saying Lionel and Sue Refuse to see their sons as anything other than their children, not as murderers, thieves, liars, white supremacists. They see their murderous children as little boys. And these these boys or young, young adults, um, they were able to create a disillusioned reality for their parents and for everybody. Well. Wow. Much obliged, Mommy C. Mm. Incidentally, I did just see uh, Amazon had to come and make a big public announcement and say, uh, "You know what? It is in bad taste." Uh, scratch, scratch, scratch. Uh, it is probably uh, not the best decision for us to make money from Jeffrey Dahmer costumes. So, we will discontinue the sales and uh, make donations to needy folks in Wisconsin. Thank you. <laughs> this was this was real recent where they had to stop selling the costume. They probably had to do that for the uh, Columbine Halloween get-ups as well. Uh, they got that all over TikTok if you need to go see either one. I'm sure you'll probably see some homemade versions of all of the above in a couple of weeks. Much obliged, Mommy C. Uh, incidentally, there are so many books around all this. I even checked Roy Radcliffe. The pastor who baptized Jeffrey Dahmer. Dark journey. Deep grace. Jeffrey Dahmer's story of faith. How you baptize Jeffrey Dahmer and then get to write a book about that too. Which has many, many ratings on Amazon. <laughs> like uh, They didn't have to stop selling that one apparently. You can sell dark journey. You cannot sell the Dahmer Halloween costumes.
Anywho, uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Hey, Gus. Uh, Victor from New Jersey. A little under weather, but I'm just going to um, add just a little, even though this is the last uh, read. Um, when Dahmer's father was given his uh, thesis, um, and he was basically, um, it, it, it seemed like he was taking accountability, but then he also um, stated that he can't leave out uh, societal uh, factors that can contribute to, uh, uh, you know, his son's um, behavior. Um, I'm like, you know, wow, you know. I mean, I, I just don't, you know, like black males don't get that luxury, you know. Um, often told, you know, um, you know, you can't blame society, and you know, even uh, Joe Biden. Um, when he gave his infamous speech on the floor, you know, he said, you know, he don't care that, you know, society may have uh, failed uh, black males or black people, you know, black males have to be brought to hell. Um, so he's honest, but dishonest also. I just felt that statement um, just, just real disrespectful. You know, your, your son was eating people, you know, um, hiding body parts, uh, molesting children, killing children, you know what I mean? So I, I don't, I, I just don't think that, well, you know what? Let me retract that statement because it, because the society and the system of white supremacy definitely contributes to monsters and monstrosities. So I, I, I guess, I, I, I guess I can give him that. Um, I could be incorrect because he does a lot of reflecting on himself, white rage. I think he admires his son because his son was able to fully act out his white rage. You know, so that's that's just my observation. But I, I, I could be incorrect, but I think he admires his son. I close. That's man. That's that's almost as bad as the black brother who wrote and called them Lionel mediocre. What? If someone said show cause, where where exactly in the text would you point out and say, hey, this sounds like some admiration for old Jeff Dahmer from the father? Um, it it it's the reflecting. It's the um the comparison of of himself. And kind of like some of his um, thoughts that could that he never acted on. You know, he often you know did that, does that throughout the text. Um, so you know, just 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 my just just a, a thesis or you know observation. Um, I think that those comparisons was 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 admiration. You know, that his son was able to act out on the rage that he often suppressed. Interesting. Interesting. So many, that's such a, a major theme in the system of white supremacy, the worship of white killers, serial killers and or killers, uh, period. Uh, and to have, uh, 
we read all about that with Columbine, right? Like Reb and Vodka, ooh, ooh, and the letters, and ooh, so, hmm. He was able to carry it out, what I just dreamed about, what I was too cowardly and passive to do. He actually did. Hmm. I think about that. Uh, other folks, any, any other folks that had final observations, thoughts on the text? May I be heard? Lauren? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Um, I do think there was a part where it showed that Lionel, um, well, it seemed like he did admire Jeff. It said, um, part of me agrees, but another part of me wants Jeff to have lived to fulfill his stated desire to share his knowledge and hopes with others. Now, I don't know what knowledge and hopes he's talking about, um, but I think that shows a little bit of Lionel's uh, admiration for Jeff. Um, so in, in this session, an anonymous benefactor donated, um, well, contributed $130 to the prison account of Jeffrey Dahmer, and he was allowed to buy 13 books. Um, and meanwhile, uh, white people are making it hard for prisoners a lot of them whom are non-white, to get reading material right now. Um, he said, in September, I received an official list of all the things that had been collected from Jeff's apartments. 69 separate sheets, all of them headed police inventory, listed the residue of my son's life. There were videos he had watched, some innocuous like Blade Runner and Star Wars some darkly suggestive, and then he listed some other movies. I just thought it was super interesting that Star, War, Star Wars is referred to as innocuous. That entire movie is about fighting the dark side and how terrible it would be to find out your father was black. Um, and it kind of also made me think about the way Lionel discussed the possibility of Jeffrey Dahmer being racist. You know, Star Wars is innocuous. Jeffrey Dahmer, he killed all these people, but he's not a racist. And he didn't call him innocuous. I don't know. It did make me think about that, though. Um, uh, the session is said, on the way back from Columbia Correctional Institution with Sherry riding beside me, I felt an odd sense of finality. One of the great roles of my life, that of a dutiful son, was over. I was now a father only. I, I noticed he used the word role. Uh, like something done by an actor, I I guess it's possible that that doesn't mean anything, but it was noticeable to me. And also that he left out husband. Why didn't he list that as one of his roles? He was married twice. Um, let me see. Uh, all the stuff, you know, he talked about uh, bringing home the box and all the things that would be in the box that he would get from the prison that he would bring back once a month. And it just, it, you know, I thought it was super interesting that they talked about crucifixes and rosaries being in there. That made me think about the religion of racism, white supremacy. And I also wondered how the prison decided which mail to give to Jeffrey Jr. and which mail to give to Jeffrey Sr. Um, let me see. 
When I think back on the interview I gave to Inside Edition so many months ago, I hear the interviewers question once again, do you forgive your son? Yes, I do, but should he forgive me? Um, and in the Stone Phillips interview, when he asked about that, um, I, I think he said that he couldn't forgive Jeff. Well, he couldn't say he forgave Jeff. I think that's how he worded it. Um, let me see. In contrast, our experiences with people like Teresa Smith have softened the hurting. After our memorial service for relief as we hugged for what seemed like a long time. Sherry smiled knowingly as she squeezed my hand and kissed me. Now that Jeff was dead, it was time to focus my life on the people precious to me, Sherry first and foremost, and my other son, Dave. These people and many others have gone out of their way to console us and to share our grief. Um, I think Jeffrey Dahmer Sr. already focused on his wife and his other son. That has been apparent in the whole, uh, the second wife, um, he focused on her quite a bit. You know, he moved her into the house uh, before he was even divorced from the first wife. And I just think about the way he was looking for the other son, David, and not seeming to care about Jeffrey at all. Um, I don't know. And just um, the black lady, I think that lady was black. Um, Eddie, I think, was one of the black males that Jeffrey Dahmer killed. Uh, forgiving Jeff, oh, man. Um, VGQ, I just think it's really important to have black self-respect. Um, let me see. Uh, I found out recently that amazingly Jeff was allowed to be without supervision for some 20 to 40 minutes with a man who had previously attacked other people at another Wisconsin prison using makeshift weapons. This man also repeatedly threatened to kill white people. One report in July 1994 described this person together uh, with a threat on Jeff specifically, but CCI personnel concluded that it was not substantive. Um, the, I noticed white people in there, and I checked the word white appears in the book eight times. And this is the only time that it's used to describe people who classify themselves as white. The other times it was used, it was used, you know, as an actual descriptor, a color or non-color of something. Um, I, I noticed that the word dark, though, was used 38 times. I think you might have also already said that, Gus, so if I'm repeating that, I apologize. Um, and, and he said, I think this might have been in the... Uh, the end the epilogue or whatnot, why would a person with a history of making racial threats and attacking people with makeshift weapons in prison even be allowed in the vicinity of a metal bar or the broom he was carrying or be allowed to be anywhere near people he specifically threatened? Right there, it seemed like Lionel Dahmer seems angrier about someone killing his son, Jeffrey, who was a serial killer than he ever seemed to be about his son killing 17 people. This has been a long book, and he has been super unemotional. That's the best way I can say it. And he made it like Jeffrey Dahmer's killer was a racist, but not Jeffrey Dahmer. I just, you know, I thought that was interesting. 
Um, and the, the last, the end of it, he said, but now in light of what happened at CCI, a place designed to prevent just exactly what occurred, it seems to me that there was no appropriate place for Jeff to go except where he is now with his Lord. Wow. So he ends the book by implying that Jeffrey Dahmer was going to heaven. Uh, uh, uh. That's that's all I have. See, I got uh, my white brother Roy Ratcliffe. Uh, he he, he thinks you could learn a lot from Dark Journey, Deep Grace, Jeffrey Dahmer's story of faith. He was baptized. That's right. I think that's one of the chapters in the book. But he was baptized. And, uh, oh, see, look at that. Look at that. It said, can God forgive even Jeffrey Dahmer? Question mark. The story behind a serial killer's journey to faith. See there? Much obliged, Lauren. Uh, let's see. Anybody reads Dark Journey? Got to get that word dark in there. You know, you got a bestseller immediately. Anybody reads that one, let us know. Let's see. Uh, I'll get in our emails and we can wrap. Let's see. Uh, Email number three. Hi, Gus, callers and cows audience. Number one, I think Lionel would have made more of the child molestation if Jeffrey had molested non-white children. I think he did molest non-white children maybe she meant if he had molested white children because I think the the children that he molested one of them I can't even make me say the name the Laotian like he molested one and then he came back and killed the brother maybe that's the way she meant it if he had molested white children he would have made more that even to Lauren's point about Lionel he seemed more upset about <clears throat> excuse me um his son Jeffrey being killed by a black prisoner than about his son being a serial killer and even killing some white people in there we can put that to the side he seems more upset about this dude killing his son in prison which is known to happen than about his son raping children I mean what those are the type of people who are frequently targeted in prison so I am told, we, you do some child molester, we, you might need to watch your back in prison. Uh, let's see. Two, the prison phone call between Lionel and Jeffrey was interesting. I think Lionel was giving Jeffrey his get out of jail free card instantly, but Jeffrey didn't understand what Lionel was telling him. Three, I think Lionel and Joyce re- realized Jeffrey was weird even as a child which is the reason they were able to abandon him so easily dang Lionel would not have been a great father regardless but I don't think his disconnection from Jeffrey is purely down to his lack of emotion or his understanding of the role of a father after all he and Joyce are very different with his younger brother that is true they even seek out Dave when Jeffrey is cutting a fool like man where is Dave at can I get to Dave's house see if he wants some ravioli for dinner Four, this book has reaffirmed what we learned through the Columbine study. Tell, oh, she itemized. Let's see. Hey, white people will be forgiven for everything, even the most heinous crime. They can eat up the whole neighborhood. Doesn't matter. B, 
like Eric and Dylan, Jeffrey Dahmer became a celebrity, even his dad. C. So were his parents. Lionel released the book three years after Jeffrey was arrested for his crimes, and he and Sherry were invited on several television talk shows. Still to this day, they got that documentary that was released right at the same time we started the book. D. The robustness of white networks that are still in place even after it's discovered what your son is a cannibalistic murderer. E. White people kill for fun. Believe it. Much obliged. Let me make sure. Uh, okay, and I can uh, finish email number one. I had to pause because we still hadn't even got that far. Okay. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer wanted control. His parents abandoned him, something he couldn't control and he couldn't let others, especially non-white people, abandon him. Lionel's parents were a great example of making a future terrorist by making a controlling white male who may seek violence as an outlet not letting him solve problems making bombs tim and his buddies dylan eric and their buddies lionel's white status is maintained throughout with white people forgiving him hey the evil stepmother sherry who barely knows jeff met him at 18 question mark is sued but joyce drug addict adulterous and neglectful abusive mother is a non-factor she did birth a race soldier who reduced the black male population Lionel thinks the prisoner that murdered his son is racial, but his demon spawn killing black males is not. How typical. How was the black male prisoner allowed to access a weapon? Question mark. The white guards on duty, that's how, used the victim of racism to make a white sacrifice and spread confusion. Didn't the black male die in greater confinement? Uh, unless I'm misinformed, he did not. Uh, he's still alive and he's done some... Uh, done some interviews and such uh, since that time but yeah I, I double checked uh, as we were reading because I was thinking the same thing like dang is he still alive and all the Christopher Scarver that's his name Christopher Scarver yeah he's still alive not dead uh, unless we missed it he's 54 years old so he should be well I was going to say he should be with us for a while but you know eh. uh, Christopher Scarver if you want to do more checking uh, Jeff is like his father and his father admits it Dylan is like his mother and his mother puts on a show to say otherwise I think some people did say that they thought we said that we thought that was a big theme from uh, a mother's reckoning was how similar because she does all that fake victim and oh they were going to kill us and oh they hated us and they were going to spit in my face and all that old nonsense like she was bullied Uh, it's this very similar uh, to the way that Dylan uh, was writing and being alienated and all the rest of it like yeah does yeah lots of similarities between Dill and uh, even some folks pointed out the German because she was all into some German poets like hey that's the Rammstein thing right you get into the German industrial rock and yeah that's even old Jeff Dahmer probably heard some Rammstein he was actually there in Germany so he would have been right in the motherland like oh my gosh they got got songs about skinning people and I would have put money on it I would have put big money on it he knew about Rammstein let me see uh, let me get my last few notes in and we can wrap. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> when he said, uh, when he talks about the effort by the Milwaukee attorney to auction off the instruments of the crime, white culture, uh, we had our white guest on from Wales this summer talking about the dark 
tourism so-called white people the serial killer museums and all of that stuff and in fact uh, when it continues and he says Lionel says that he was talking to a European friend probably someone classified as white and they said that such a thing wouldn't be allowed there and it would be crossing over the line of acceptable behavior get out of here man Kevin Dutton is English and he wrote uh, Wisdom of Psychopaths they have all kinds of Jack the Ripper uh, museums uh, over there, serial killer museum. Lucy, let get out. Get out. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, let's see. When he says at the great point, Lauren brought up that being the exclusive time in the text when he uses white to describe the racial classification. He doesn't even point out, uh, Mister Tuomi, that this is a white person. Why didn't he bring that out, right? Because he said, hey, Jeff being accused of killing most of these, like, hey, Mr. Tommy, he didn't even do that. This is the only time that, uh, see, see, letting this racist black dude run wild in the, he doesn't even name the killer either. That important as well. We talked about that even all the way back to Columbine, where the D.C. snipers, Lee Malvo, John Muhammad, were not named. It was just D.C. terrorists, negros, black males who do not need to be named. Uh, let's see. He taught, he said glorifying in Jeff's murder, man, nobody has been glorified like Jeffrey Dahmer. He is way more popular than Charles Manson, even the Columbine duo. He got that Netflix that even before that <clears throat> he had all kinds of books, television programs and documentaries and very sympathetic even before the Netflix series and subsequently glorification get and he got the letters and such to prove it and as i said you could forget all the serial uh, murders and such a lot of people do not like child rapists that might be a reason some people might yeah good riddance anyway uh when he said congressman Traficant of Ohio ranted to his colleagues something to the effect we should let all of them just kill each other. I said, ooh wee. That right there sounds, what do you say? Racial. Because I mean, hey, Wisconsin is known for locking up Negro males. System of white supremacy in general. So when you say just let them all kill each other, hmm. I already know who you're talking about. Some white sacrifice for sure, but hey, we do stuff a lot of dark people in those cages, especially in Wisconsin. Uh, Let's see. And he says the failure of the criminal justice system, man, the failure of the criminal justice system is why Jeffrey Dahmer was able to kill so many dark people to begin with. If this had been handled correctly when he was raping children, none of this would have happened. Maybe they would have at minimum he would have been apprehended much sooner. He wouldn't have had to. Be. What are you, old freak, Tracy Edwards? Get back up there, Tracy. Get get back up there, old freak. Freaky blackmail. Uh, let's see. When he talks about that whole we're on a continuum uh, of lust and being more observant about things and obsessions and all of that, I, you know, reject, uh, I reject all of that. That just sounds like some Sukli bold psycho babble type, uh, nonsense jargon to explain his murdering white offspring. Uh, let's see. 
He said, then in quick succession, I made contact with a network of scientists from California to Russia. I shared tapes and articles with Jeff up to the time of his arrest in July 1991 and then afterward until his death. This book was written before O.J. Simpson was convicted in 1995. The Internet was in its infancy, even for well-to-do white people with university access. That right there struck me as very Sue Clebo, how she got all these white scientists, white experts, lend their white expert opinion to say, oh no, Dill was depressed. Dill had some brain deficiencies that produced all of this. Jeff was not insane. When he went to trial, they did not find him insane. And the very documentary that was released concurrently with us reading this text influenced us reading this book at this moment. They pointed at some of the very white experts. They said it's very hard to prove so-called insanity once you have evidence of planning. A person is strategically carrying out their crimes. That gets more difficult. Like, oh, this is what you want to do. You know what's wrong. You're taking the steps to be evaded. Like having those odor eaters and things. Like, that sounds like a sane person who doesn't want to be caught. You got all these locks and things on the door. Cameras. This sounds like a sane person who doesn't want to be caught. You're not crazy. Dr. Chalapa talked about this in detail. Even, in fact, Dr. Angelin Spalding Flowers in talking about Columbine and saying the same thing. This is not a problem of insanity, madness, Joey 22, or mental illness. Not at all. People can do heinous crimes that certainly there might be some problems with their thinking, but in terms of them being insane, they know right from wrong. No. <laughs> They're sane. We just have to look at why are you thinking about doing these things? My goodness. White culture. Uh, let's see. But quick contact with white experts around the world when a time you could not just hop on Zoom and make it happen. Uh, let's see. They said he had people writing him from Australia again at a time when you did not have amazing Wi-Fi. People from Australia, white presumably, who wrote in with tears. We miss old Jeff. Now, let's see. Afterward. Oh, my Lord. When Lionel Dahmer, he said, what's my word to every father? Take care. Take care. Take care. <laughs> Man, I'm done. I'm done. Like, that's what you got to say, white brother. Take care. You're a scientist. You don't have no detailed list of, you know, do this, don't do that, watch the pornography, don't have a. Take care. Take care. One more time. Take care. <laughs> Lionel is a fool. Let's see. Uh,. He said, uh, (laughs) 
He said the police gave him, uh, or they put away, he was talking about how we try to protect our children. He said, we put away the knives and guns and poisons and even plastic bags. I even thought about that one, like white people and their guns and all that. He even thought about the poisons. I was like, is he talking about cleaners? Or are you talking about like the chemicals that Jeff had to like make zombies out of people and such? Like, cause I mean, we got a scientist here. Like I, formaldehyde and so like, I don't know. Anyway. Uh, and then he continues, he says, as a scientist, I further wonder if this potential for great evil also resides deep in the blood that some of us fathers and mothers may pass on to our children at birth. In addition to whatever my, my genetic contribution was, the violence and crime in our society, same thing we heard about all the killing and such uh, from the Columbine folks, glorification of vi- I mean, now who's at the center of that? Like all these years on with Dahmer, even all the books, I pointed that out to a listener. I said, man, there are like thousands there are so many books and dissertations and articles and things on Jeffrey Dahmer and this I mean like way before the Netflix series it is stunning where we have so many problems and even so many killers Dahmer's been dead for a long time mm, got to, got to the white man who chomped on all the niggers mm, got to write something else mm. Even this book that we're reading, they uh, I put that in purposely, the audio book. That was 2022. This book went out of print, and they brought it back, maybe in time for the Netflix special last year. Uh, let's see. He says in December 1992, that's, again, you have to take time in this book. Jeffrey's not a racist. The black male who killed him, Christopher Scarver, is a racist, and he hated white people no mention of the LA riots he could have even got Reginald Denny in there said the same thing see it's running rampant they got white people just being killed by these racist niggers they could have no no not scientific uh, Lionel let's see man I lost it when he said he got the police inventory and they went through the sheets and everything else and he said there were ordinary things suddenly made unspeakably perverse barbecue I can't even barbecue sauce meat (laughs) it's not even funny meat tenderizer it's not even funny it's not even funny delectable come on come on come on even in fact I, my rewind when he's explaining the first time he went to Jeff's apartment he said dang Jeff what you got these security cameras and things for dang Jeff what you got that bucket for that big tub what you gonna do with that man what you got all these locks on the <laughs> like man he's already got the child molestation and everything he's got the gun the poor nut like come on man come on he should have been found guilty like absent same thing said about Sue Klebold if you didn't know you should have known lame parenting once again uh, let's see who got he got an anonymous benefactor to put all this money on his book like come on that sort of thing right there worship of white killers you got black people in jail for nonviolent crimes three strikes drug offenses and that sort of thing where they got locked up stigmatized ain't nobody putting five cent on your books to get a can of spam a can of sardines toothpaste nothing get out of here should have behaved yourself. That's what, get a job. Go down there and make some license plates. Make some furniture and see if you can get some money on your books. They sent hundreds of dot. Come on. Come on. Uh, let's see. 
anything else before we wrap it up our last uh, the heartfelt congrats I bet uh, Sue Klebold probably got some racist congratulations as well even in fact I was thinking I guess they didn't vet their mail the Dahmer family it doesn't sound like they didn't go through and have you know people to pick out or what have you uh, both Sue and the Dahmers they include how uh, they got all of these uh, girlies and what have groupies I guess probably some males too oh my goodness we love Jeff and oh we love Dill and he's the cutest and all and all that really that that right there is in the glorification why is that even included that's the same thing I said in the last book why is that even included you can just uh, real minimum we got all kinds of fan mail much of it appropriate people who celebrated some really ungodly acts we get right through right that's what it's like he spent more time on these goofy letters i won't say goofy but on these letters than on man tracy edwards what he had to say on Geraldo. you had to go back up to die come on come on he's let's see some of the teens right i said that could have been uh dylan reb writing like for reals he said teens writing that want to be pen pals man that seems like something reb and dill would have done that would even be one to check on our deal in red. Did they write <laughs> like, man, woo, they did that school project on them. Uh, let's see. So they got the autograph seekers. We got so much of that right there. White culture, autograph seekers, souvenir hunters. Now even pause on that. Who is souvenir hunting from a cannibal who was accused of being a racist stalker of black and non-white males? What sort of souvenir souvenir do you want? Teeth? Penis? Genitals? What do you want? Finger? Heard all that before, right? White culture. To Lauren's point, he does not even specify. I was going to, because I went back and looked from which he mentioned it, but then he brought it up again in the second part. He said, and so it became necessary to find another place for my mother to live. We found one a few weeks later and on March 29 Sherry and I went to gather my mother's things from the apartment she had lived in since Jeff's arrest he doesn't specify is this a nursing facility <laughs> like what is this very you know, scientist he understands the significance of world like, I don't want to mess up my sympathy and happy like whoa did you just throw another whoa 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 we did not put her in a nursing room we just put her in a residence <laughs> where she's no longer in her you mean a nurse? We didn't say nursing. What do you mean? You just put her in a residence. She couldn't stay by herself anyway. Slick Lionel. Uh, I did not appreciate the way that he discussed some of the uh, victims, Rita Isabel specifically, in, any of them really. The ones who he took time to talk about them forgiving. We talked about that before, VGQ. Uh, but even Rita Isabel, who's infamous being the victim who is shouting in the courtroom I really don't know what the correct way to behave is when a suspected racist serial killer child molester has killed your or killed a family member of yours attempted cannibalized them and all the rest tried to make a zombie what is the correct way to act and even use this world she lost control man please if you don't get out of here lost because if anybody's out of control it's you even for having this child then you're not going to take care of him and then for sure Jeff 
get out of here. And even to put it, like I said, he doesn't even mention the name of the person who killed Jeffrey Dahmer, but he mentions Christopher Scarver, but he mentions Rita Isabel being out of control and shouting obscenities and all that. Your nothing is more obscene than Jeff. That one even personal give that two time man so much of this is repetition Ronald J. Dominic same thing we read about in New Orleans but I just watched all this in Buffalo outburst in the courtroom I just told you about all that what's the appropriate way to behave someone goes into a grocery store and takes a high powered military grade rifle and blows the black of the back of your loved one's skull off while she's trying to get bananas what is the appropriate controlled way to behave? He even used the word that some of the, oh my God, talk about, he said during the next few minutes, as Sherry and I looked on, several members of the victim's family spoke about what my son had done to them. Mrs. Hughes, the mother of Tony Hughes, was very dignified. I had Mr. Fuller ringing him out. What is the difference between a dignified slave and an out of control Rita Isabel? You both ended up having somebody you care about killed and chomped on. What's the difference? Police came around and called them a freak afterwards. What's the difference? You handled it in a dignified manner and you were out of control and cursing. What's the difference? But I hope we get somebody cool to put you in the Netflix series. No mental illness, of course. More pictures. Anything else? That's good. Uh, soon we missed. We didn't miss anybody. Got everybody's commentary. I didn't make sure I didn't miss any of our emails as well. I think we got all our emails too. Grant, woof, man, book that I did not even want to read, and that was part of the appeal because I said this is a short book. Hit it and quit it done new book for next friday already picked we'll post and share all that as we proceed anyone if you listen to the archives if you do any sort of project comparison contrast what we heard and then it's wow end with a boom you do any sort of comparison contrast between the previous book that we read about white bombers and pranksters mass murderers and this here text let us know. We will share if it's a video project, if it's a written project, uh, whatever else you can think of. Uh, let us know. Audio project, I guess. Whatever means you can think of. You do any sort of comparison to work that brain computer, let us know and we will share. That was one of the motivating factors for reading this book. Much obliged for all the folks who tuned in. Cannot wait for next week. That was the book that I really wanted to read instead of this, but I thought this would be worthwhile, even though I was not excited. Now that we're at the end of it, worthwhile. Looking forward to the new book. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow, Neutralizing Workplace Racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Saturday, compensatory call-in, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Share the broadcast. Hopefully, Mr. Zuckerberg, Meta, Employees will allow me back to Facebook shortly. Uh, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us 
remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately <laughs> let me get one more Jeffrey Dahmer joke in let's see let's see let's see uh They got so many of them. I'm trying to see if I can uh, pick a a really good one. Let's see. Uh, What did Jeffrey Dahmer call the guy that ran from him? Fast food. Pee Wee Herman just passed away. People who are in the entertainment. Uh, What do Jeffrey Dahmer and Pee Wee Herman have in common? They were both caught with their hands in their drawers. Last one, last one, last one. What's Jeffrey Dahmer's idea of fast food? Usain Bolt. Caribbean spice, right? Jamaican Negro, delectable Negro. Mm-hmm. Context of white supremacy, signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.